Hey guys, welcome back to the 307 Podcast. I really hope you enjoy this upcoming episode with our friend Edgar Mills. Edgar spent 24 years in the U.S. Army, 16 of those in Army Special Forces. And uh, it was really fun for me to get to sit down and talk through some memories and, uh, and, and things that we both experienced during our time in special forces there are a lot of acronyms in this uh episode and it was pretty funny blake said over there and he said half the time i didn't even know uh, what any of those acronyms were but just breeze over them and take some time and extract the lessons learned through the stories that edgar shares uh, from his time in special forces it's a pretty powerful conversation so this episode is brought to you by our partners at Exoskin. All right, Exoskin is the premier running apparel on the market, hands down, in my opinion. What makes Exoskin different from other running or fitness apparel out there? A bunch of things. It has 90% fewer seams in their shorts, their shirts, um, all of their apparel has rapid dry copper technology, which means it has copper fibers woven into the fabric and these things don't get to stinking like your normal old running shorts. The fabric is made, it's actually like a 3D type fabric. It channels moisture away from your skin. So all of these features make Exoskin top-notch and makes Exoskin stand us apart from all other apparel companies. Uh, you don't chafe nearly, nearly as bad when you've got a good pair of Exoskin shorts and shirt on. Uh, this stuff lasts forever. I literally have a pair of Exoskin toe socks that are over two years old, and I still run in them. The toe socks are just unbelievable. They're a game changer in terms of caring for your feet. Uh, everything that they put out is made in America, 100%. That means a lot to me. You guys know that we vet our partners here at 307 Project on a high level. If you want to support the show, it helps to support the companies that support this show. So if you're getting ready for race season, if you run, if you do CrossFit, if you backpack, Give Exoskin a try. You will not be disappointed in the performance of these awesome pieces of apparel. All right, guys, check them out, exoskin.us. I'll attach a pro code in the show notes of this episode that's going to give you a discount off of any gear that you purchase for, from Exoskin. Without further ado, here is our conversation with Edgar Mir Edgar. Mills. Oh, don't worry, Edgar. Our listeners are used to uh, <clears throat> hearing phones ring in the background. So, welcome back to the 307 Podcast, everybody. We've got a special guest on for you today. I'll introduce him here in just a minute. But, Edgar, you asked what I did this morning. Well, I had my buddy come out to the house, my buddy Jesse. A lot of you listeners, you know who Jesse is. Jesse Itzler, good friend of mine. Um, he came out to the house, and now Jesse likes to sit in the sauna. That's, his, that's one of his things, right? And when you do a sauna session with Jesse, 
you better look out, son. <laughs> now, I like the sauna, too. I, 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 I use the sauna every day. But when Jesse comes out, I'm usually at like 185. Today was 204 with steam for 17 minutes. 204. I mean, we got to 15 minutes, and he said, well, I'm going to sit in here for another two minutes. You good with that? And I said, I might have two minutes in me, but I ain't making no promises. <laughs> so I PR'd on my sauna today. Dang. That's what I did. I like but, it, man. I love well, the sauna. Yeah, That's, man. When you sauna, you don't have to do anything else. You, you don't have to run or yeah. lift. You just sauna. I've told y'all, man. I've told y'all on the podcast before, the sauna is legit. I'm telling yeah, man. you, man, it helps me mentally. You know, I'm a little crazy, Edgar, probably like you. Yeah. I get a sense you're a little crazy like I am, right? I, you know, it, and so you get in there, you hit that joker for two or three rounds, and and, uh, and you, you get to the point where you just want to bust out of this thing, and you sit in there for another five minutes after you hit that point, and you're so freaking exhausted, you can't be angry. You you just you just ready to go home and relax, man. So, I love it, dude. That's good stuff. Well, you're probably going to get ticked at me today because I've had this sinus thing. Oh drink, my god! So I'm liable to get coughing and hacking up something over here. I'll just turn your mic off if you get to coughing over there. Mm. Um, well, let me introduce our guest today. At just from a high level, we have got uh, our friend Edgar Mills, right? Yep. Edgar Mills on the podcast, and uh, Edgar, 24 years in... 25 in the Army, yeah. 25. 16 in, in uh, Special Forces. Okay, yep. 16 Special Forces, Green Beret. Yep. Um, and let me tell you guys how we met Edgar. Edgar has a training company called Osprey Shooting Solutions, and Edgar put on a event called the OSS Challenge just this past weekend and i've never done a shooting challenge before um never i mean other than just training in the teams right, where right. you're you know out there with your buddies but uh i kept seeing that thing at the gym right and people kept telling me about this guy named edgar and and this and 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 i just i, I just finally said you know what i blake and i we're always the instructors and that can be a problem. You have got to go and subject yourself and become and, and be the student every now and then, right? Yep, that's right. And so that's what that was all about for me. You know, and walking into it, I've never been around that crowd before, the civilian gun shooting yep. crowd. It's bad. <laughs> man, on YouTube, I, I'm like, I don't want to be around these people, like, because they're just they're they're geeks, man. Yeah. But showed up. Everybody was cool, man. Yep. Everybody was super chill. Edgar is there. He gives the range brief. He and I could tell right off the bat. All right, this guy's legit. Like I feel, I feel safe here. I feel comfortable. This he he's he knows what he's doing. I, you know, I never met you before. I knew about you know your military background, but that was it. And um, and uh, shot the challenge. Everything was awesome, and it really brought out some deficiencies in me as a shooter, and we're actually going to tailor our training based off of what we yeah. learned at the OSS Challenge. Yeah. The number one deficiency for me was that 
30, 25 meter, whatever that, that shot, yeah. that long yeah. shot, we don't train at that distance, man. No, not hardly anybody does. Well, when you're in and you, you train that with your teams, but uh, yeah, most civilians don't shoot 25 yard bullseye. That's one of the hotnesses on uh, like Facebook and all that, the B8, uh, NRA B8 bullseye challenge. Uh, people got different variations on that. 10 yards, 10 rounds in under 10 seconds, trying to get the best score out of 100. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the 25-yard bullseye, trying to get the best score out of 100. But the 25-yard the shooting, that's, that's what brings in your – or highlights your fundamentals. Yes. Or where you're, where you're yeah. short on your fundamentals. That's exactly right. Yeah. Because yeah. I thought, you know, I thought my trigger press was squared away. I mean, I teach that to students. And, yep. and then I get back there to 25, 30 – and and just uh, just a minor minor uh, mishap on your trigger press throws the shot. Yep. Yep. And I was shooting twenty five meters at, at our range two days ago, and I told Blake I was like, if you just pull the trigger right, you hit every That's time, right. <laughs> every That's right. single time. Yep. And so that's something I'm doing every day now, Edgar. Yesterday I went down and uh, shot from anywhere from forty to twenty five meters. And just working that trigger press. Good, and it's yeah. not sexy. There ain't nothing fun per se about it. Yep. But, man, it, it just highlighted a deficiency in myself and, and in the way that we train. Um, so, thank you for putting that on, brother. Yeah, yeah no, nah, man, it was fun. Uh, it, it turned out, I thought it was a big success. I, I'm happy with the way it turned out. Uh, like I said, it went, it went faster than I thought it was going <laughs> to go. Yeah. Uh, because of the way I set up the scoring, I just miscalculated how fast it was going to be. And plus, we were all out there hustling. Yeah. Most, when you reset targets a lot, people kind of <laughs> dilly-dally out there. But I had two other, I had Glenn and uh, Desmond out there helping out. So it went real fast, which is, that's a good indicator for the next one. Uh, yeah. I'm going to do a two-day, and instead of adding a whole bunch of stages, we're going to come up with some <laughs> torturous stages mm-hmm. next time. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, that, uh, and I'm glad people, you know, Anytime you shoot competition, you can pick up where you're, where you're short at. Yep. Mm. Um, most of the guys that came out have been. That's one of the things I'm kind of proud of is most of the guys that come out are, are return customers. They come out, they do a course, have a realization of like, oh man, I'm dropping the ball here or there. Don't come out and do another course, get real tight, and they come out to all the competitions. You know. Yeah. So that's good. Um, I'm trying to get the. I'm trying to get the Northwest Georgia community shooting yeah whether they want to be competitors or not that's why it's non-sanctioned stuff you know small environment uh stress-free environment yeah no not unless not i'm back there yelling at you unless you're yelling, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i noticed i was the only one doing that yeah everybody else is very subdued but you were busting his chops pretty good <laughs> and jd yeah jd needed oh, yeah, somebody JD. to bust hey, his he, chops, he was man. hustling man uh, I told JD, I was like, "Hey, man, you come." He comes out and trains a pretty, pretty regular out there, and uh, I you and I out shoot him most of the time. But he turned it on. I was like, "Man, you're 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 game day, dude! Like you you brought the heat on game day." Yeah, <laughs> and he was like, "Yeah, man." And full kit helmet, full kit, yep, yep, a- everything, dude. And he was moving, man, and hitting, uh, shooting fast and accurate, and, and moving fast, man. That was good. Yeah, um, those all those stages were conducive to to hustling. They're meant to be fast and intense, short and intense. Yep. And, man, he, sh- he showed up for that, and that was good. 
Yeah. Well, that was awesome, man. Uh, I, um, Edgar, I'm just interested in you, brother, um, <clears throat> who you are as a person, uh, because, again, it's not every day that, uh, that I get to hang out with my brother that, that is not only my brother in Christ, but also a brother in arms, former Special Forces operator, and uh, I'm thankful that you've come into my life, man. And I just want to get to know you better. And uh, I want to go back. Where'd you grow up, dude? Well, uh, I'm a city boy. Yep. I was born in Decatur, Georgia. Uh, my family, we've lived all over the, the southern suburbs of, of Atlanta. Well, we started out in southeast Atlanta. Kind of kind of crept south down Moreland Avenue. <laughs> uh, we've Anywhere from McDonough all the way across the south, all the way over to Douglasville. Uh, okay. Um, a lot of my family is from, lives in Loganville right now, that, that sort of northeastern area. Um, we're the only ones that ended up in Rome. And it was, you know, call it divine intervention or whatever. We were up looking at a property in Tennessee mm-hmm. after my retirement in 2020. We were at my mother-in-law's house for a couple months looking for a house. We went and looked at a property in Tennessee, and uh, it, it wasn't the thing. But we took the we took twenty seven home. We were yep. just going to take the back roads back down to Carrollton, and uh, we were coming into Rome. And we, were, my wife, remembered didn't we see a house on Zillow that looked pretty cool? So we stopped. Well, we didn't stop. We we're going to do a drive by. So you see on Black, so you see how far the house is up on the hill. Yeah. Uh, the owner was selling a 65 Mustang in the front yard. We were creeping by, and he waved us down. He's like, hey, you looking at the car? He's like, no, nah, man, I'm looking at your house. <laughs> he stopped what he was doing. He was with another guy. Wrapped up business with that guy, invited us up, showed us the whole house and the whole property right there on the spot. Wow, man. And uh, it was awesome. So then I called my realtor. I was like, hey, we want to look at this house, you know, officially. Yeah. And we ended up with it. He... Uh, that joker dropped eleven thousand dollars on the spot. The, the foundation was kind of kind of sinking down a little bit yeah. on that hill, and you know VA don't don't mess around with stuff yeah. like that. And uh, we bought it on the VA loan. Uh, that joker dropped eleven grand. Got it, two days later, it was fixed. Damn, so, gone, it was man. meant to be. You know that is awesome. I think, um, but yeah, came up in Decatur. We, you know, I was a I was a, a only child from a less than wealthy family. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Came up on the lower end of the the economic spectrum. So uh, I was largely unsupervised as a child, which is bad recipe. Yeah. I was always wild, kind of in trouble and stuff like that. Um, was there, uh, do you have a history of military service in your family or? So, sort of, yeah. My, my dad was in, you know, he was in for four years. You know, he did a, did a, a, a tour in Germany right before I was born, um, came back. He was at Fort Polk. So we moved from Atlanta to Fort Polk when I was an uh, infant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he got out, you know, shortly. And f- fortunately, you know, he didn't have to do, he was in during the Vietnam era, but he, he was, he was in second, uh, infantry division or, uh, armored division. So he never went okay. to Vietnam. Um, uh, have an uncle. So, my grandma's brother-in-law was a fifth group Green Beret in Vietnam. 
So what I remember as a youth, because my grandma and my Aunt Betty were inseparable, because Jimmy, who's, who was my uncle, he, he died in Vietnam. And uh, so they were, they were inseparable. Anyway, I remember pictures of him, and I mean like big old, you know, two by three foot pictures of him. That's cool, man. Wearing his green beret, you know, arms out, superhero style. Yeah. And he was a picture taker in Vietnam. He, he, you know, remember the carousels with the slides? Yeah. He had that. So there was just big boxes of slides of wow, him man. and his team doing what they do in mm. Vietnam. And that was my, my childhood was that. Like just anytime I'd be over there at their house, I'd, I'd whip out the carousel and just look through them, you know. And I was a wow. G.I. Joe kid too, you know. Oh, I was too, yeah. brother. <laughs> G.I. Joe. Yep, yep. And the little art the little plastic army men yep, with the yep. with the plastic base on them, yep, you know. Yep. I used to build whole battlefields and firecracker yep. IEDs and I didn't know what I was I didn't know about any of that and yep. I was doing it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That was that, one of the things. So uh, t- two courses of action for my life when I was young. <laughs> I think if I'd have been a little more supervised or, or had a little more guidance, maybe I'd have, I'd have probably been. I was. I wanted to be a commercial artist. I, I was good at drawing. I liked to mess around, and I do all my own logos and and all that that stuff now. But um, uh, like I said, I was wild, you know. So yeah. Uh, my granddad and he wasn't in the military either, but he was. He 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 was pretty close to Jimmy anyway, but he. I don't know. He might have been one of the bigger influences for to go in the army. Really, just because he admired soldiers so much, mm-hmm. and I, I, I wanted to be you know somebody he admired. But uh, my granddad was a big influence on me. But as far as the military goes, I knew when I joined the military that I wanted to be a Green Beret. Um, but because of my wild youth, I had a security clearance issue. Okay, it took me several years to fix. So I was an 82nd Airborne Division. Yep, yep, Airborne Infantry Man. For you know, about eight years or so in Fort Bragg, which is <laughs> a miserable place for those of you man are wondering. I have heard about the Army Static Line course. Uh, yeah, I I have you know they used to send team guys through that course down there, uh, SEALs, and I've heard horror stories about that training pipeline. Well, I mean, it goes through varying degrees of hardness. You know, I I went in I don't know ninety five or something and. Uh, or 96 or something like that. And it was, uh, you know, I don't know. Was it challenging physically? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it was hot. Yeah. I was there in like July or August in Fort Benning. So yeah, blazing hot. The physical training part of it, yeah, it was all right. I was young, you know, you're 19, everything's whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but static line jumping itself in the 82nd. Let me just give you a typical day. Wake up at the house around 2.30 or 3. Stuff something in your face. Go to work. Either march or get on a bus and go down to Green Ramp. Get your parachutes on in a big, fast hurry. Uh, get JMPI'd in a big, fast hurry. Because, mind you, this is probably a whole company or a battalion of dudes doing this. So there's a lot of people to get inspected. And then you sit rigged up. For hours. Miserable, dude. Miserable. <laughs> and, you know, TOT might be 1,700 that evening. So, you know, jumping was Holy just, it was a misery. It was a, it was a misery every time. Now, I, I was fortunate. When I was in 82nd, I was in the long-range surveillance detachment for a little bit. So, anytime we jumped, it was 
it was usually a smaller element so it could get done. We usually did helicopter jumps, you know. Yeah. Which is always better. I've never static line out of a helicopter before. And yeah. just for the listeners, if you don't know the difference between static line and free fall, static line is when you jump out of the aircraft and you have a line attached to a cable and it pulls your parachute for you. Static line, you're usually jumping at very low altitudes. Yep. It's actually much more dangerous than free fall because if you jump static line and you have a malfunction in your main chute, you don't have any time. No, All right. Time. And, and, and Edgar talked about sitting around jocked up and y'all might think, why does that sound miserable to sit around and have to sit around with your parachute on? Well, let me tell you, this static line rig on your back is just this big old heavy clunky thing and you've got two straps that are coming up yeah. around your crotch and just choking you out. And then your reserve chute is on the front of your body. And when you jump static line, this is another thing. When you jump static line, if you have a malfunction in your main chute, you have to open your reserve and throw that thing out. Like, you don't have any... T yeah. This is like... This is insane, dude. And then... All right. To top all that off, when you get close to the ground, you have to do something called a PLF. P parachute Landing Fall, yeah. I think is what it stands yeah, for. Yeah. So, a static line chute is just a big circle. You can't flare the parachute to stall out and stop and have a smooth landing. You're just coming down... Hot, son. Yeah, yeah. And Edgar, you're a heavy dude. I mean, yeah, yeah. they called you no frills, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're built like a tank, so I know you were falling fast, all right? You get the ground's coming at you fast, and you got to put your feet and knees together, and you got to fall a certain way because you hit the ground so hard. Yeah. If you don't PLF properly, you're going to break your leg. Yeah, it I, ha happens all the time. Nate. Happens all the time, all the time man. And back in the day, you know, when you didn't have uh, shoots that you could, well, they're not really steerable anyway, but. You can kind of just spin them. Back in the day, they didn't even have toggles. You just had to reach up and pull risers to try to slow down. Yeah. Um, so you're at the mercy of the wind and your weight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that um, that was in the 90s then, right? Yeah. yeah. So when did you. Uh, uh, I went to Q course in uh, 03. Okay. And I was there for, you know, almost two years in the Q course. Um, where where were you at when 9-11 uh, went down? I was on leave coming back from – I was in Korea. I did a year in Korea. I was on leave uh, sitting on my couch, and my, my wife had a house in Carrollton, so she moved away from Fayetteville when I went to Korea because <laughs> everybody hated, hated Fayetteville. <laughs> yeah. So and she wanted to be close to her mama. So we rented a house in Carrollton. And she lived, uh, We were. I was sitting on the couch watching news uh, in between duty stations, going back to the 82nd. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I watched it, I got up and I called and I figured out which brigade was on direct ready brigade. The, the brigade that if anybody was going to go, it would be them. I, I tried to get in that brigade. I think I think third brigade was on at the time. I tried so hard to get in the third brigade, but when I signed in, I ended up going to the 504, which was 1st Brigade. Um, <clears throat> so 9-11 happened. You know, SF dudes went over there in the late, late 01, uh, like almost a month later, I guess. Now, SF had been in, in Afghanistan uh, 
a long like they have a history in Afghanistan, right? Because didn't they lead the 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 deal with the 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 horses? So, I mean, there's a book written about. No, that's that. right. Um, that's right. Uh, the horse soldier. There's a, there's tons of books about it. But yeah, I think somewhere around so September 11th happened. Somewhere around mid October, a handful of teams from Fifth Group went in. Uh, one team up in the north linked up with the Northern Alliance. Wouldn't that have been an awesome Pretty mission? No, man. That that's an enviable. That's some SF stuff. That yeah. is the quintessential SF mission, right? Unconventional warfare, link up with indigs, yeah. train them up, and then go take it to the bad guys, which is exactly what happened. Uh, in my opinion, now, I don't want to get too political around here. You can get political as you want. But in my opinion, Afghanistan was won <laughs> by the end of 2001. Taliban was crushed. Yeah, uh, We was ready to hand over government to an interim government which we did. Uh, I think we should have high-fived, kept up, uh, uh, you know, maybe a financial support and whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when the uh, big conventional forces want to get involved, that's when it all gets crazy. So, and money starts flowing. Yeah. And all that. <clears throat> so, but yes, SF did the textbook mish. Yeah. In, in Afghanistan in 01. And it was, it was magical. I, I've had an opportunity to be briefed by uh, the team leader. Of that of the the northern line the north uh, team, um, and SOCOM, I worked with one of the guys who was uh, down in uh, um, further south, the east, one of those teams. Um, it was good stuff. I missed that boat, and in oh yeah. three, I was in the Q course, chomping at the bits, you know. Which I think brings up a good point. Um, I think maybe our listeners that haven't been in the military. <laughs> You know, we have in today's culture, we have people uh, that that went on those high that was that they were on those high pro- profile missions, right? Um, and uh, we have people like Jocko. He was he he led the charge into Ramadi. Um, we have uh, you know multiple kind of icons of of this past war that we fought and. I, I don't know if people realize being in the military and getting those slots, getting those missions, nine times out of ten, all it is is that person was in the right place yep. at the right time. Look at the draw, man. They were in the right you cannot chase war. Yep. You can you can do everything. You can show up, you can train, you can make it through the pipeline. And you may never get one of those high-profile yeah. missions. You got to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah. It's we, it's weird, and it's frustrating as crap for every operator, because yeah. you hear your 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 buddies doing this, or somebody comes off deployment and they just did this, and you're like, "What the crap, man!" Yeah. Everybody wants to get some, everybody, but yeah. it doesn't always work out that way. No, everybody wants to get some. Um, but the emotional roller coaster is most of the time when there's a famous event, somebody had to die because of it. Yeah. So that that's the emotional part. But when one of your mates dies, that hardens everybody up, strengthens their resolve, and they want to go get after yeah. some more. You know. Yeah. And that's the way it is. And and sometimes you have good missions, uh, but the famous ones, like yeah, you there's no way you can. You can't put yourself there. It you just, can't. It happens when it happens. That's it. Um, you never get to choose the time or place when the bad guy's going to do whatever he does. Yep. 
Um, and you never know when it's going to be. Like I said, I tried to get in the ready brigade that was going to go. Yep. Turns out 10th Mountain went first. Um, fortunately, my brigade went after 10th Mountain. So I ended up, my first trip there was one January 03. And we spent probably 11 months there. And, uh, and now was that still, was that with the 82nd? Yep. Okay. And it was like I imagined war would be from the movies and everything. We were out in Skin, which is on the far eastern border of Pakistan. And uh, the little the little fortress, the little medieval fortress we were living in, it was like I, I imagined it would be. And we got rocketed probably two, three times a week. Got troops in contact, you know, a couple, three times a week. Yeah. Uh, we were out there. And even then, uh, I mean, we were cruising around, fire team of infantry dudes on the back of an open back, Humvee with no armor on it. Yep. Because, you know, all that equipment was just coming in. You know, it wasn't there yet. That's right. Um, and at that fire base at that time, we had, uh, ironically, a Navy SEAL team was there. Had a couple of uh, agency dudes there. Mm-hmm. And we were there, you know, we were the heavies for those dudes just to go block, you know, blocking positions or yeah, uh, village clearance, whatever it is we were doing. But uh, 11 months, dude. Bro, and let me that's tell you, a long deployment, that's a long man. deployment, and nobody gives credit to the conventional dudes that had to do. Like there was dudes that would, I mean, they would do a year rotation, and that, bro, living elbow to elbow, like your homies are your homies, but yeah, <laughs> like you need, yeah. a, you need a break, uh, and then there ain't no break to be had uh, a lot of times. I've I've never done an eleven month deployment. My deployments were anywhere from four to six months, right, and yeah. um, and so. I have to. I have to wonder what happens, uh, at least for you, over the course of that time. Did you, as the as the deployment went on, did you get better because you were more acclimated to the environment and you had more situational awareness, or or did you become complacent, or did both happen? I mean, what happens over that time span, man? Well, well, during that time. I would say as a as a squad. So we had probably two squads of dudes at that firebase, and that you know you know eight or eight or so guys per squad. It was a small firebase. Um, as a unit, we got better. Like we we adapted our tactics because we were out there seven eight infantry manual on the first couple months, and realizing that that ain't good. Like. One day in the middle of the day, uh, the squad leader has walking down the middle of a wadi, and I was like, "Hey, man, yeah, <laughs> don't don't you feel a little uncomfortable right yeah. now?" Uh, so anyway, we kind of adapted to the environment. You know, by the end of it, I mean, we were out there. I mean, literally, you might do two. You might do a presence patrol that day. Go out that night on a on a named operation, uh, and that was daily, man. Like you had, Man. you had dudes on on gate guard because you didn't have like, like now all the fobs got you know sock or some and, other yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it wasn't like that so you know we had dudes on the gate guard and that would last for a couple of days then we'd rotate then dudes on uh, QRF and then dudes on 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 mission yeah and every couple of days you rotate out mm-hmm. so being on gate guard was like the rest time yeah but you can't be sleeping on on gate guard no. you know what I'm saying. <laughs> But there was shit, you know, so that was the rest time for that. And then 
And QRF was kind of like rest time too, but QRF was almost always going out, you know. Responding to something, yeah. So it, it was it was high tense sort of situation. We got better as a unit. Uh, everybody started to learn. You start to learn other dudes' idiosyncrasies and all that stuff. But then, like, but emotionally, like, everybody's getting fed up with each other's bull crap. Yep. When you're, when you're sitting in the bunk. We had one amongst the whole crew. We had one, like, uh, they had these little crazy handheld, like, little video DVD player things. And the only DVDs we had was, like, season two of Sex in the City. <laughs> so we were, <laughs> like, 12 dudes sitting around trying oh, to watch, watch a, like a six-inch screen or a four-inch screen. Uh, How was Chow? Uh, surprisingly good, man. Now, I like Afghan food. It was awesome. And that's okay. what we had. Uh, mostly was Afghan. We had a little uh, Afghan cook, you know, make up a big giant bowl of rice every day. Heck and, yeah. And uh, some goat and some chicken or whatever. Beats the heck out of MREs, doesn't it? Yeah. Em- bro, oh, man. Don't even get me started on MREs. <laughs> it's got, hey, it's got to be hard times for I, I crack guarantee, open MRE. I guarantee <laughs> it's you. It's got to be hard times for I crack open MRE. Um, so, um, dude, just, uh, 11 months yeah that's 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 crazy dude i couldn't I, were you married at the time oh yeah oh yeah what well, let me back that story up though one of the reasons i, I hated the 82nd so bad um you know the 82nd ain't famous for anything since world war ii right They're, you know yeah they did a, gr- a little they jumped into panama but yeah arguably sf and seals and rangers were already there and they were yeah well not arguable they were uh but um, so this being the first rotation of, of combat rotation for first brigade since, you know, whenever we did, uh, I don't know. Seals go to JRTC and NTC and all that. Right. Uh, down in Fort Polk or out in California. Some do. So anyway, JRTC, that's a, that's a every year thing or sometimes twice a year, um, training event. And it's a, a big, you know, Full spectrum and all that stuff. Yeah. And it lasts anywhere from, you know, probably four weeks or so. My brigade commander, we did two back-to-back JRTC rotations prior to deployment. So what does that mean for, for a guy who's got kids? You're you're not home. Right. So let me see. My, my daughter was born in October, late, late October. So prior to October... So probably um, late September, early October, we went to JRTC. Came back, was on leave for a week. My fortunately, it just lined up that my daughter was born that week. Wow! So I went, saw my daughter born, kissed my wife, went back to JRTC for a month. So that was November into December. Came back, took two weeks of leave for Christmas, gave my wife a kiss. And then one January we were we were gone, and then gone for you know, eleven months. Man, man. So and that and to me, you know, that was just like a you know, yeah. You want us to be ready for combat. I, I understand that, but that's what we do. That's what you, you train, at least in the infantry, right? Yeah, you, you got nothing else to do but train for combat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to go twice before deployment, I thought was a little kick in the junk. Uh. And a slap in the face to the families. Yeah, I yeah. thought totally, man. Yeah, um, that that would know. be uh, that would be tough, dude. But and, 
a uh, long deployment like that. Fortunately, that was the only one. Now, I had one like that in SF2, but it wasn't a planned. It just kind of kept getting extended a little yep. a little bit by a little bit, and we were there for maybe you know, nine months or so. If they told us we were doing a four-month deployment, count on it being six months. Yeah. yeah. And in SF, you know, it's standard six months for a combat deployment. I don't think – and I also don't think the listeners – you might not realize we're giving you a lot of insight into what the military life is like and why they call it service and why you hear so many people talking about military service as a sacrifice. Um, When you fly over to these crap hole countries, you don't always know how you're going to get home. That's that's absolutely I I can't tell you how many countries I've flown to and we knew what we were doing there. But none of us had a clue when we were going to be finished and when we were finished, how we were going to get home. And just eventually somebody would call and be like, hey, guys, you're moving to a new location. You know, you got a ride coming in, in two days. It's insane, dude. I'm Sounds tell- like that backpacking mission me and you went on. Yeah, that's why I'm like that, Blake. That's why I'm like that. I mean, people... People don't understand. It's everything's not set in stone and lined no, no. up. And no, man, you it don't ra- know. It rarely is even yeah. on a even on a standard deployment. Just getting all the birds lined up to move that many people. Logistics is a. I can't remember who said it, man. But one of my favorite quotes is, uh, um, "Amateurs discuss tactics. Professionals discuss logistics." <laughs> getting you know two hundred dudes to and from is a big deal. Yeah. Uh, and when you got dudes in Afghanistan, for instance, spread out over eight or ten different fire bases and fobs and whatnot, or you got guys, uh, so the way it operate, you know, every AOB had a had a section, right? So AOB North or AOB South or Central, or whatever. Um, but you know, you got a company worth of dudes spread out five or six different locations across the country. So getting all these dudes to and from. And that don't even get started on like customs and all that stuff yeah. when you get to Bagram or wherever. But it's a it's a pain, and sometimes you'll sit at Bagram for a week, week and a half, two weeks, mm-hmm. waiting on a bird. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you see birds coming and going. You're like, what? Can I get a ride? <laughs> where are these yeah. birds going? Where are they where are they coming I from? I know it, man. Uh, and then you'll go sit in, uh, you know, freaking Kuwait or something for another two weeks, yep. watching birds <laughs> land and take off. Where's my bird at? Yep. A hundred percent, man. So it's it's, you know, it's a it's a hassle, man. Yeah, deploying, doing the job is one a very rewarding thing. Uh, and when do you know, in the bulk of your time, you're there doing the job with your with your team. Uh, no, can't beat it. Yeah, but the, on the on each end, man. Good lord. You know, it's it's weird because I think people, I don't know how you are, Edgar, but for me, um, I I'm really good at staying present. That's one of my biggest strengths, I would say. In, in in other words, if I've got some big task, I'm really good at breaking it down into digestible segments, what I need to do that day to accomplish the mission that day. And, um, and that's a good thing, and you get a lot done that way, but somebody's got to be looking ahead like somebody. Right. There's got to be somebody. And so I'm not that guy, and I think that's the – what taught me to be so present is these situations that you're talking about of 
just going into some place you've never been before and not knowing when you're leaving or how you're going to get back home, well, you have no other choice at that point but just to do what you got to do yeah, that day, man, because you'll happen. drive yourself freaking crazy yep. if you're thinking about how you're going to get home and, and well, are you going to be there for three months, two months, four months? You, yep. you don't know. So, um, I, got, I got a pretty funny story on uh, when I was in 1st Battalion, 10th Group, stationed out of Stuttgart. And me and my team leader and a, and a, and a warrant officer went over to do PDSS, which is pre-deployment site survey. And we didn't have a place to work. Uh, Admiral McRaven was the SOCUR uh, commander at the time, and he wanted to get 1st Battalion in the, in the fight, right? Because 1st Battalion had yet to deploy to any combat in 07. So he, under, under uh, if you remember back in the day, it was ISAF, was a, like a command, and then you had CJ Sotif. Mm-hmm. That's what it used to be called way back. So you had the special ops, and then you had the NATO stuff, which the U.S. is a part of as well, conventional yeah. guys. So he got 1st Battalion in there uh, on some kind of ISAF deal. So we were dependent upon ISAF for support, and 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 C. Josephus wouldn't support first time because it wasn't a part of the the M the package whatever. So me and uh, my team leader Mike, we were in Kabul, and our guidance was go find a place to work. Like um, <laughs> he's not joking. Yeah, this so, is how it works. <clears throat> we were like. Uh, so we we're hanging around Kabul talking to the SOC C element, the special operations component of ISAF, which rotated through different, like it happened to be a British guy at that time, which was good for us, uh, like a full bird colonel. Like that was the level of command it was. And uh, he's like, well, I mean, yeah, you guys can go out to Farah, check that out, which was in the West. Uh, go up to Harat. Yeah, you guys can do, yeah, you can do that. We'll, we'll set you up there. Like, can you get us a ride there? He's like, eh. <laughs> he gets, so me and Mike flew on a guy dang. Now, this was 07. We got we we were literally out on the airfield with our stuff, thumbing a ride. We ended up catching a Blackwater uh, mail bird that was delivering mail. <laughs> Holy smokes. And he's like, how many of you are? And we're like, two. How much you weigh? Like, All right, get in. That sounds about like Blackwater. And we landed <laughs> we landed in Farrah and got off yeah. like, Hey guys, we're uh, <laughs> <laughs> like it was a cold call on a five. You know what I mean? Like, hey, that you, guys, is wild, you guys got man. any? You guys got any barracks or anything where we can stay at? <laughs> I, I worked with those guys over at Blackwater for about six months after I got out, yeah. and to hear some of their stories of of how they uh, of what they did over over in Afghanistan, especially in the early years. Yeah. Um, they were just cowboys, dude. They yeah. just did whatever they wanted. Blake, will you cut some AC on for us, man? Yeah. And keeping it hot in here. Yeah, that, you know, I don't know, man. I used to have a love-hate relationship with, you know, I hate to use the word mercenary, but that was a word that was thrown around a lot with private military contractors. But, man, they were making the big money, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and young guys are like, man, I want that money. Um, I've never been, I've never contracted like that overseas as a protective agent or whatever. Uh, any contracting I've done since retirement's been like role playing stateside. Yeah. Um, and I'm always on the fence whether or not I want to go do it because I could go get out of debt this year. <laughs> yeah. But who who wants to go to Ukraine? 
I don't want to be 50 years old and get my legs blown off. Yeah. Uh, after spending 25 years with, you know, without being shot or, well, had some near misses, but I ain't never been injured. That's uh, right. As That's far right. As, as that goes. Yep. So, you know, I, I, I kind of deal with that. You know, like, do I want to go over there and make the money and, and take my chances? Mm-hmm. And I don't mind putting my skill up against other people's skill, but so many there's so many variables out there that are out of your control. That and know. nobody's coming to get you. Nobody's it, coming to help you. That's either. a fact. Yeah, if if you're working for a company like that, if anything, well, the company, but never mind. Just to, at the the company don't care about you. No, that's right. But in the last year, we've seen that probably the government don't really put a lot of stock in you either. Yeah. So yeah. you're 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 out there flat. If, you get cut loose, man. You- <laughs> I'll tell you what I did, Edgar. When I when I got out of the Navy, this is a funny story. I think I've told it before on the podcast. I went to work for, it's called Academy now. Yeah, it was yeah. formerly Blackwater. I went to work for them for about six months, and I realized I I was stuck in this place where, where I was trying to rely on all the skills that I, and, and the things that I had done as a SEAL. I thought that was all I was worth, right? And I said, "Well, I've got to utilize this skill set in order to find, in order to move into another mission." It was the same mission yeah. that I was, you know, serving in the in the military. But man, I was freaking miserable, dude. And uh, because it's different there, I mean, just it's it's not like being in, in the teams. And and uh, so after about six months, I went down to the local tactical shop i loaded my toyota truck down with every piece of kit uniform everything that i had and i sold it all to them for four thousand dollars i bet it was thirty five forty thousand dollars worth of kit i mean cry camis uniforms tents all everything i had to i had to detach yeah from all of that completely in order to find my new mission, and now I have to buy all my gear again. <laughs> <laughs> and so I spent, now you're gonna pay sixty thousand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I gotta buy all my freaking gear again. So yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying everybody go do that, but yeah. it helped me detach and like focus on. Wow, I actually have. We have value to offer to the world outside of tactics, and you can actually that value that we have. Because of our lifestyles, and Edgar, you did twice the amount of time in the military that I did. Twice, double, right? And that value, people want that. They need it. Corporations need it. Yeah. When you go out into corporate America and you realize how these people are operating, they have no clue what it means to lead, what it means to be led, what it means to communicate, what it means to build a team. They have literally no clue. The only reason these people are successful in corporate America is because the ones that are successful, they are simply willing to work and take a little risk. That's it. That's all. But you can take them from being successful to being the best right, right? with a little bit of leadership training, with a little bit of training to communicate, building a team, all that. That's second nature to us. When I got out, I thought everybody was like me. Yeah. I thought everybody, this is common sense. Everybody knows this stuff. Nobody knows it. Yeah. 
Nobody. It's insane, dude. I want to get back to your story, though. I just got off on a big tangent. No, no um, that's it. Leadership. Yeah. Man, that's 100%. That's it, man. And it's not complicating to us, but yeah. to well, them, it's insane. You know, I don't, I don't know a lot about the Navy SEAL culture. Right. Every organization, though, has good and bad leaders. Oh, yeah. Uh, people who, who chase rank for the sake of rank and all that kind of stuff. He will talk on you behind your back versus throw you under the bus. But then there's some guys that are goddamn natural born heroes, man. Yep. And that's the kind of guys that you're like thankful to know, thankful to you got a chance to mm-hmm. absorb some some of them into you. You know. I agree. Yep. But leadership. Uh, what you're saying, like when I started training civilians in 2017, I was still in the army. <clears throat> And I was seeing a huge disparity in the way I was delivering the product versus what was getting received by people who weren't used to direct communication. Yeah. Uh, the clarity. Because the, I feel like I'm, I'm a pretty clear communicator, right? Uh, and I don't mince words. Now, this has been a, arguably a problem in my career is being very direct. Because even in SF, dudes have feelings, it turns out. <laughs> And uh, I've never used that as a planning factor. <laughs> yeah. So I say what I mean, when I mean it, uh, how, and, and all that. I don't want there to be any ambiguity or, or question about what I'm trying to deliver to folks. So turns out that's, that's a good leadership thing, trait. It's clear communication. You know, one of my challenges, and, and I'm, I'm trying to learn it, and I've been learning it with civilians especially, is trying to soften it up a little bit for civilian consumption. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sometimes I have, uh, like I got uh, one girl that's been out a couple times, 21-year-old, little sweetie, you know, very, very soft and dainty. And uh, I got to communicate with her. Yeah. I can't just give her the knife hand and, yeah, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Well, and you know, that's even, I, I think we have to assess who we're dealing with. Yeah. One thing that's interesting, though, is uh, I, I, we keep going off on these dang tangents. <laughs> One thing that's interesting, a lot of the people that we train actually like the style of communication that yeah. you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a market for that for sure. Man, when we go out, when we go out and train, it if if Blake lets Blake will let me off the leash every now and then. <laughs> and when he does, and I get to use that direct pure honesty with people, in assessing their deficiencies yeah. and, and, and 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 people love it. Yeah. I mean, I've been I've been assessing a student um, verbally, and we'll call it an assessment. Assessing or assaulting. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I'm like, man, this dude. I might have to fight this dude uh, after I tell him what I'm about to tell him. And we get done, and, and you know, a little later on in the mission. That person will come to one of us, the instructor cadre, and say, "Man, I really like yeah. how he just called me out for for being a freaking turd." He's exactly right. You know what I mean? So there well, is sometimes a, that's what it takes for sometimes. that eye opener. You know what I mean? And that's that's why I like to be direct when I'm dealing with people. And I definitely uh, I definitely change my my teaching style depending on who I'm teaching. Yeah, and the way I'm delivering the product. Um, when I'm when I'm training cop, I still train military guys and cops. Um, and usually when I'm training those guys, I'm a little more 
uh, I, I reach back to Staff Sergeant Squad Leader uh, Edgar Mills. Yep. And, yep. But um, even with civilians, yeah, there's a market for guys. You know, they're and IT girls. guys girl, and, and girls who who do these things, and they they all they put military or, or law enforcement up on kind of a you know uh, I don't know a pedestal, but they look at you in a certain image, like you're hard and this and that, and they want to. They want to get well. They're sick of getting fed a line of bullcrap yeah, from the world. Yeah, that's that's, that's true. Yeah. You know, they're just they're just sick of it. They're sick of people beating around the bush with yeah. them. They're there. They're they showed up to train, and yeah. hey man, they're ready to hear it. I mean, I, I love it. Yeah. I love it. But you meet some interesting people, man. Yeah. Uh, I got. Now, let me let me tell you one story about speaking of interesting people in Colorado. I had a a little bitty. She must have been four foot eight little black chick she was cute as all get out and she is a astrologer or what it, what it was the ones where they do the signs like gemini and leo and all that i think that's astrology right astronomy, astronomy I whatever something, something about the stars yeah well you know where <laughs> one she, of those space things you know read your palm and this and that yeah tarot card whatever yeah and uh she came out to a course you know a couple hours into it, we took a break and i was like hey if you don't mind my asking like <laughs> you don't seem like a gun chick so, you know, uh, and she told me a story about, uh, um, she's single mom and her daughter was walking home off the school bus and a, and a grown ass man was following her and the man followed her all the way to the house. And once the girl hit the sidewalk of the house, she hustled up to the door and mom happened to be standing at the door and that dude stopped. He looked at the door and looked at her and, and paused. And she had a realization at that moment that if that dude wanted to come in that house, there wasn't nothing she could do about it. Mm. And it scared her, you know. So she mm-hmm. went and bought a gun, and the next weekend was out in the course uh, doing a good for her, man. Yeah, that's yeah. what I said, right? Yeah. So you never know who you're gonna come across. So if I was, uh, if I was being big, tough uh, master sergeant, uh, you know, Edgar with her, it probably wouldn't have went over too well because she was already clearly nervous. Yep, mm-hmm. hands were shaking. Yep, I had to give her a little. And in Colorado, you got to caveat. It's like, hey, I'm going to touch your shoulder. It's not sexual. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. But I'm like, hey, you know, calm down, relax, and, you know, breathe. Mm-hmm. I had to make, make her understand that, you know, it wasn't as scary as all that. But you get who, whoever you're dealing with, man, you got to kind of. That's part of being a good instructor. Yeah, yeah. for sure. That's yeah, a huge sure. part of it. Um, but, yeah, anyway. Now, Edgar, you, people. you came off this 11-month deployment. And is that when you – had the opportunity to go to Q course shortly That's after right. that deployment. So I went to the Q, I went to selection in 98, went to Q course in 03. So from 98 to 03, I was dealing with trying to get my, I had an outstanding felony for getting in a fight. Um, little backstory. I was a bicycle messenger before I was in my early twenties. I was a bicycle messenger in Atlanta and, uh, <clears throat> people got upset that I was riding on the road, but that's the law, right? Bikes ride on the road. Um, now, I might have run a couple red lights here and there because I was a bike master. But anyway, this this guy on the passenger side throws an unopened Coke can at me and hit hits me in the head. Now, what do you think, you know, 22-year-old Edgar Mills did? I turned into the Incredible Hulk, right? Yeah. <laughs> Chased the dude down to the next light, threw my bike down behind the car, and I walked toward the car. Um, and something prompted, oh, so I walked toward the car 
the dude opens the door. He gets out, and this is six foot three, two hundred and fifty pound dude. So I grab my bike lock, and I he gets back in the car, and they take off to the next light. Uh, oh no, he get back. They get in the car. The lady driving pulls up, throws that joke in reverse, and stepped on it. This was they were doing construction at the Margaret Mitchell house, which is Peachtree and something like tenth, maybe tenth or somewhere around there. I pick up a giant boulder and smash it through the car window. <laughs> I mean, they were literally going <coughs> to smash it. Through. So then they stop. Dude gets out and he comes after me. I go after him. A cop was standing on the corner, <laughs> you know, witnessing the whole thing. Dang. But what the cop didn't witness was him throw the can, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we both got cited, but we didn't go to jail. They, they gave us both tickets to show up in court. I showed up in court. He didn't show up in court. My charge got, uh, instead of assault, it was... Uh, criminal damage to property over a certain amount of money, which was a felony. Mm. So that sat in the court for that many years, right? Like I'd call and get, try Gosh, to get a status. Oh. Eventually it went out of my mind. I was like, well, it's, it's got dropped because the guy never, they never found the guy. Uh, it never got dropped. It just sat on somebody's desk. So I had to get a lawyer, you know, about $3,000 later to uh, find the status of the case, go before a judge, get it adjudicated as, Whatever it was, not whatever makes it not on your uh, a, a charge. Yeah. So I was charged with it, but never convicted of it, or never. Mm -hmm. uh, so it got dropped. Got that paperwork. Went to Afghanistan in '03. Came back in something like November of '03. In December, I was signing into the Q course because I got my security clearance while I was deployed. Got you. So as soon as I got back, man, I was packing bags and going to CIF, turning stuff in. I was ready to go, man. Um, because not only – I knew I wanted to be SF anyway, right? But seeing the SF dudes <laughs> downrange, yeah. I was like, man, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, I knew I wanted to do it, but you know, dealing with those guys and watching them work, it was weird. Ironically, I, I met the team leader several years later when I worked at SOCOM. Mm -hmm. He was at SOCOM. I was like, know each other i was a young infantryman and he was a team leader on on the, the team that was uh and this was at uh uh fob salerno which i don't know if it's still called salerno or not but um he was the team that was working out at camp uh man i'm embarrassed right now um listeners probably wouldn't know if you yeah, just threw yeah. out a name um, anyway it was named after uh one of the first early dudes that got killed anyway but um they would come to uh, they would come to our our fob to you know do intel intel swaps and and sometimes we would support them on a mitch or whatever yeah anyway i ran in that guy years later but i knew i wanted to do sf i got back as soon as i got back man my orders or my clearance was there i called the q course uh the little assignment lady like hey i'm ready yeah um and i was and i was in the q course uh asap now I want you to explain to us and to the listeners, too. I think there's a lot of confusion around the difference between SEALs and Green Berets and Delta and Army Rangers and yeah. all this stuff. So what is how would you how would you summarize the the main mission set of the Green Beret? Well, it's unconventional warfare. And now that's a very broad term. I know and most people 
don't understand the nuances of it. But uh, one of my favorite things, and I used to make all my dudes on my team when I was a team sergeant read uh, OSS to Green Berets by Colonel Aaron Bank, who was the, the first commander of, of SF. Um, it, it, it's going in and building an, an indigenous insurgency. It's, it is a relational aspect to it. It very much is. You yeah. have to, these dudes have to trust you. Um, you have to, and you have to convince it. Now, should you have to convince a grown man to fight for his country? You shouldn't, right? But sometimes you do, especially in Afghanistan. Um, um, but yeah, it's very relational. You, you meet these people, you know, you have to one demonstrate that you're the expert in warfare. <laughs> yeah. Why you have to bring to them, like, how can I help you? You have to earn credibility. You have to, yeah, you have to be credible. Yeah. Um, and then you have to, you know, unconventional warfare, you know, is building this insurgency, getting the, the support of the people and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody sort of understands it from World War II movies. Um, and, it, and it evolves in, in way different ways o over time. But like I said earlier, the guys who went in Afghanistan first, the SF dudes, they, they did sort of a textbook SF thing. You know, they yeah. went in. Now, yes, there was a CIA guy that – was was there that made the initial sort of initial contact kind of like what what you might say a pilot team would do um and then from that contact he he basically told the sf dude like here they are yeah they made introductions and then these dudes had to get the credibility of dostum who was a warlord obviously in the north so this is this hard dude who's got all this kind of local power yeah and you gotta explain to him why you're there why like you can make him better that's right and he's looking at you like well you don't even have hair on your face that's got to be nerve-wracking you dude. know what i mean yeah and with young because all in sf all the team leaders are captains and, they, and they're young and not young but like 30 yeah which is pretty young yeah and uh you got some old you know 45 year old afghan dude who's like what do you what do you got what do you yeah. got for me you got nothing for me but Totally. Uh, you got to you got to show that you're credible. You got to show them how you can help them, uh, and then you got to build up the the support of the the, the community uh, because in unconventional warfare you might have to depend on the underground or the uh, mm -hmm. or your auxiliary people who aren't necessarily fighters who can help get you resources, uh, medical resources or transportation or, or whatever. It's such an awesome skill set, man. Uh, and I'm a little bit envious of it because, you know, you guys know how to go into an area and literally topple governments, topple regimes, build insurgencies, build networks. That's a complex. It's very complex. And a SEAL, our main mission set is direct action missions. Right, yeah. Which is, it's short, just yeah. hard-hitting it's uh it's i mean i just the time that we live in right now yeah. i wish i knew more about what edgar knows how to do it, it's a really cool mission set um unfortunately throughout the course of afghanistan it became direct action direct action yeah uh once you you know the early guys worked with some like really just dudes off the street trained them up but once they kind of created the the army Mm -hmm. and sort of formalized it 
then it became now sort of like that's sort of like foreign internal defense, right? You train their soldiers how to how to soldier better. Yep. Um, and then you know, I I I spent plenty of deployments just literally kicking doors and taking dudes, getting free helicopter rides. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So and that's cool, but yeah, it's it's pretty limited in scope. It is. Yeah, hundred percent. I I want to go back to the Q course. What was the what was the most difficult part of the Q course for you? Huh. Which what is the Q, the Q course? The Q course. The quali- yeah, qualification course. It's That's like they're buds. Yeah. Okay. It's like buds for Green Berets. Okay. Yeah, it's the yeah. qualification course. So you got a selection, and, and the, the length of selection has changed many times over the years. It, they're always kind of tinkering with it and trying to refine it. Uh, selection's a very physical, <laughs> painful. It's a gut check, absolutely 100% carry huge amounts of weights for long, long miles, mm-hmm. lift crazy logs and, and do weird stuff, um, obstacle courses, unknown distance runs and all that stuff. It's cool. Um, and for me, it was challenging. Um, I've always been a middle-of-the-road kind of physical guy. Like, I'm pretty strong and pretty fast, or used to be. Uh, Middle-of-the-road. Mm-hmm. I was never the best. I was never last. Um, it's a good place to be in selection, though. Well, it was a it, good place yeah, to be in buds. It kind of is, Because yeah. you don't get spotlighted. Uh, it kind of is. Uh, but I was always middle of the road. Um, and the Q course, the, the, the SF qualification course, um, there's different phases of it. And when I went through, it's different than it is right now. But you have sort of common to all type stuff. And then you have your job which I was, I started out as an 18 Bravo, which is a weapon sergeant. And the weapon sergeant piece of it was all, I don't want to say easy. I, I was, I'm good with guns, but uh, if you've ever heard of FDC, when you're dealing with indirect fire, right? Fire direction center, fire control, and all that. Mm-hmm. Doing math on a, uh, a doodad um, plotting board. Yeah. Oh, bro. Oh, now is I that trying struggling. to is that trying to calculate where indirect fire is coming? That's correct. From? You're trying to put rounds, indirect rounds on on, on a spot. Right? So that would be like mortars, exactly. Like okay. Mortars. No, that's yeah. what it is. Mortars. The heavy side okay. of mortars. So we did, uh, you know, handheld and and mounted. Uh, we did. I have very all. limited experience with mortars. Well, let me tell you this: in combat, mortars are a okay with me, man. We yeah, like that. Anytime we went out on a mission, like the first thing me and my senior Bravo, I'd put security out. Me and my senior Bravo would go look for where we're going to put our little mortar pit. Yeah. Um, at any rate, doing the math, doing the real deal math. Now we every, now we have mortar ballistic computers, right? But there's always somebody checking it against a, a plotting board. Mm-hmm. I'm mathematically challenged. Yeah. I always have been. I barely graduated high school with, with pre-algebra. Yeah. Barely, right? Uh, if you make a mathematical error on a plotting board, it's like building on a, on a false foundation. Yep. Because every plot after that is now wrong. Yep. Uh, and it's it's that was my challenge. Okay. And that was the hardest part for me. And that that was a mint like that was a, a technical problem. wasn't necessarily physical. Yeah. Like my instructors smoked our smoked us all the time. You were cool with that. Uh, yeah. Like, I'd rather go out and get smoked than have to sit there and do math. Yeah. That was the hardest part of the Q course for me. 
uh, I, absolutely the the hardest. I can I can relate to that. Yep. Um, for me as a breacher, calculating something yeah. called net explosive yeah. weight. That's right. It I I don't even know if I ever figured it out. I just kind of I just kind of got to the point where I I just kind of knew a seven put a seven foot strip charge. I got to be at least sixteen feet away from this thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, if I anybody asks me right now, fourteen foot is the magic number for minimum safe distance. For- <laughs> For anything i don't even know uh, yep. 14 foot or behind a corner <laughs> that's it uh, man. i don't i don't math man and uh, i was never good at it we also did this thing egger um and buds just your story reminds me of it just the making those calculations and how that challenged you similar things challenged me we did a thing called um hydrographic reconnaissance where we had to go out into the ocean and we had a lead weight on a string, and the string had knots tied in it. And so we had to, we were treading water, and we'd have to drop that lead weight down to the bottom. And then we would count the knots as we pulled it up. So we were taking soundings or depth measurements. And we would have to do this across an entire beach, write our soundings down on a chalkboard, and then go back into the classroom and spend all night hand drawing a map of the bottom of the beach (laughs) all night. And if you made one error on your chart, you had to scrap the entire freaking thing, dude. I never dipped so much Copenhagen in my life. (laughs) Y'all wonder why everybody in the SEAL teams dips Copenhagen? It's because of Hydro Hell Week. This is right after Hell Week, and they do this to you because your body's so beat up, they can't make you run. Yeah. So they're like, how can we wreck these guys? Let's do hydro reconnaissance. They don't have to run, but they're going to be swimming all day and up all night drawing these freaking charts out. That's why everybody in the SEAL teams dips Copenhagen's because it's the only way to get through that. It's the only way to stay awake. Coffee, Monster, and Copenhagen. So It's funny, man. Well, you know everybody in the military like you can't rely on electronic means right you have to be able to do everything land you, nav, you gotta be able to do it all man, that manually like yep. it's nice to have the electronic means but you gotta be able to do it manually as well yep uh for me the when we got the mortar ballistic computers it was magical man i was like thank god <laughs> yep <laughs> you just put some few calculations in there and let her rip yep and you get you know first round hits on mortars you know uh with the mortar ballistic computers yeah that stuff's magical, but yep, if it goes down, like batteries always go out, you know, things always break. That's how it is. You know, and these hard skills are are almost totally lost now. We teach land nav at all our courses, and um, people are so reliant on GPS. Yeah, Nobody knows how to do map and compass land nav anymore. I haven't had a single student, not a single student. How many people we trained, Blake? Probably, we've probably trained 300 people yeah, at least. in the last two years. Haven't had a single one that knew how to map and compass land nav. So that's why we teach it at, at every single course, yeah. man. It's a, it's a valuable a, that, skill. That is a valuable skill. Um, yeah. Absolutely. For but, civilians, for anybody. Yeah. Like just just hunters, uh, mm-hmm. whoever. Exactly, man. Um, but yeah, that, that is a valuable skill. And, so, and people like to do that. Um, oh, they love it. There's a whole segment of society. Now, I'm, I'm not a prepper or anything like that, but I'm finding out there's a whole segment of society. <laughs> they're like that's where they're at you know they're yeah. doing they're trying to learn these skills yeah and well that's, that's it's good man. it's becoming evident that skill i i preach this all the time man 
Skills are what makes you valuable in your community, yeah. in your family. Uh, it, it's what makes you valuable to your your nation. Um, it's what skills are what makes you ungovernable. They make yep, you sovereign. Right. Yep. All right. You have to have skills in order to maintain your freedom. Independence. Independence. You're exactly yep. right, Edgar. And that's why I look. Look at this, man. How many people spend money on a on a fitness trainer? Thou hundreds, probably millions of people have a. They they'll spend money on a fitness trainer. How many spend money on a on a life? coach yeah how many spend money on look man these people aren't teaching you any skills but you won't spend money for somebody to teach you an actual freaking skill yeah you're an idiot that's where i'm at sorry about that guys um that's just what i really think about it Uh, people don't have any skills look man you can have somebody that teaches you about business. That's a mentor. A coach teaches you a skill. All right? You can have I want you guys Should. To, I want you guys yeah. I want you guys to understand the difference between a mentor and a coach. A coach should be teaching you an actual skill. And seek skills that are going to make you valuable. Not how to play freaking uh, uh, freaking racquetball or something yeah. stupid. All right, all right, off on that. All right, you make it through the Q course. How how was your how was your experience in SF? That's a long time, man. <clears throat> Sixteen years. So, I how many up, deployments did you do? Uh, I probably got about six, I guess, in total. A couple to Iraq, mostly to Afghanistan, and then tons of. J sets to yeah. Eastern European, wherever, and Africa. Uh, I've been to probably, I don't know, 50, 50 plus countries uh, overall. Most of them I've actually worked in. Some of them were just stopped through for a week or whatever. But um, So you stay busy. Oh, man. My first, my first, the, uh, well, yeah, I'll, always. <laughs> I showed up to the 1st Battalion, which is in Stuttgart. Showed up to a team, which I was oh, so fortunate. My team sergeant was a, a 21-year SF dude. Not Army, SF, 21 years. Mm-hmm. And he he was hard as friggin' nails, man. Um, he knew everything. And he, was, and he was a soft-spoken guy. He wasn't even – he didn't come off like that. He was what I imagined – should be my team sergeant. Yeah. And I was, oh, man, exceptionally happy. Um, one of my seniors, who I'm still homies with today, he came and visited a couple weeks ago, Jason. Uh, he was a big muscle-bound angry dude. You know, told me I keep my mouth shut until somebody asked me something. <laughs> Good advice. Uh, Good advice, hard to do. And my still best friend today was the – Junior Charlie on the team, who had been on the team for maybe a year when I showed up. And uh, so, yeah, it was a good – I liked it. We did, And we, we did a lot of training straight away. Like, I immediately we went to Africa, Algeria, uh, in the freaking middle of the Sahara Desert. 
it was, uh, yeah. I was like, wait a minute. I signed up for 10th group Europe. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> North Africa. Because 10th group's mountain, mountain warfare, right? Well, now, people, people conflate 10th mountain division. Oh, okay. With 10th group. Gotcha. Every SF group has mountain teams. I, I was a team starting on a mountain team. Okay. Uh, 10th mountain is called 10th mountain just for legacy stuff. Gotcha. Um, yeah, Algeria. That was first trip. Uh, I learned a lot on that trip, but I broke my leg on that trip in a jump in the Sahara, by the way. Static line? Yep, static line. Um, and I will forever <clears throat> blame the guy that I blame. I'm not going to name him, but um, it was pitch dark. I, most of the time when you jump at night, you can see your canopy. I mean, you're – you can see a silhouette of it. Like, yeah, it was so pitch dark. You, you looked up and it was blackness. Right. It's one of the scariest things in the world. So I looked up the fact that I wasn't falling fast. I'm like, okay, my canopy's open. Yeah. We start looking for uh chem light. So the air force guys pushed out a four wheeler with a chem light on it. And that's what we were supposed to be looking for. Mm-hmm. So that went out before us. I jumped. Try to figure out my canopy's open. Canopy's open. Okay, good. I started looking for the chem light. So I see the chem light finally. And I kind of kind of turn toward it. And I'm like, based on my experience, I figure, okay, about enough time's passed. Pull my rut. As soon as I pulled the rut to drop it, it hit the ground. Gosh. And my feet were still slightly spread apart. Yep. I landed right on top of the rucksack and my legs split. And all my weight went on my uh, my left ankle. Her, snapped. Like, you could hear it out loud in the night. Gosh. Pop. Dog. And my team started said, because he was, you know, probably down the drop zone a little bit. And he, he heard, <laughs> he's like, I knew it was you, man. <laughs> Turn, anyway, I distinctly remember during the Mako brief, which is the pre-jump sort of briefing that uh, I asked. He didn't brief the drop altitude. So I raised my hand at the end. I'm like, hey, what's the drop altitude? Uh 1250, which is the standard static line training jump, 1250. Okay, no reason, right? The plane that took me to Siganella, Italy, to to the hospital, is the same plane we jumped out of uh, the night prior. Mm -hmm. I asked him what the jump altitude was, and it was somewhere around 900. Mm. So in my mind, I I was following, you know, by this time in my life, I probably had 60, 70 jumps. So you knew how long it took you yeah. generally to get to the ground. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I was a little upset about that because that break, I didn't let it heal correctly. My medic was kind of a, you know, it was a heavy drink, you know, whatever. It wasn't like, I didn't do proper physical therapy on it. Yeah. And it still bothers me to today. Yeah. But prior to going to Africa, we went in February. I jumped mid late February, broke my in December, right before Christmas, I broke my other leg. Mm. Same exact spot. So I shouldn't have been jumping out of airplane mm. at all. Um but I was the most senior jumper. I wasn't the most senior guy on the team, but other than my team sergeant, I had more jumps than anybody else because I came from eighty second. Yeah. So we my team wasn't even meant to be on this jump, but we were under ACO and we were BCO, and he demanded we we have representation there. So my team was like, "All right, me and you go, get it over with." That's wild that you tell that story, man. Because we just talked about 
all the stuff we just talked yeah. about a static line you're hearing what mm-hmm. you're hearing yeah. it, it that we, it actually happens it's like um he's talking about jumping at 900 feet let me give you some context free fall you jump at 12,000 yeah. feet all right so you got all the time in the world if something goes wrong 900 feet you're on the when you're out of the plane the ground's yeah. right there well that's the whole point like in training normally it's 1250 feet. yeah uh but I think in combat, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 or 700. Because you don't want to be hanging out under canopy. And no, you don't. And that's the whole idea, get as many people out and on the ground as fast as possible. So these dudes that jumped into, like, uh, Grenada, or, or did they jump into Grenada? I know they jumped they got into turned the around, airstrip. I think, in Panama. Yeah, in Panama, yeah, um, which was a disaster. Yeah, but these dudes were, I don't even think they had reserves, if I remember back. Or maybe it was Grenada that they did, didn't load up with reserves. But at that di- uh, altitude, you don't – the reserve is in effect. Like, it don't have time to deploy, Yeah, mathematically speaking. Yeah. So, they did um, – so, if you're going in on a combat jump, like, which is arguably an outdated infill technique. Right? Yeah. Uh, arguably. Um, yeah. That's dangerous. I think free fall is probably more dangerous because there's a lot of technical stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, it, but the trick is, if you don't trust your stuff, you're gonna be nervous, right? Mm-hmm. I've I never thought the chute wasn't gonna open. I didn't put my mind in that. Yeah, I never. I just assumed everybody was professional. And was, I've never had a malfunction. Yeah, under canopy. I've and never. I've had a twist, but never never a malfunction. You talk about those uh, night jumps too, man. I mean, I I've done multiple night jumps uh, out over the horizon in the ocean. And that dark that Edgar's talking about is a whole different level. Oh, man. When you go out of the plane, you don't know which is direction the ground or the sky is. No. Because when you come off the rear ramp of an aircraft, it pitches you forward. And you have to bend your knees to counteract that and actually get into a good free fall position. So it pitches you way forward. And there's a while where you don't know what up is and what down is because it's so dark you can't see the difference between the surface of the ocean and the sky and then when you finally level out look at your altimeter pull your chute you get under canopy well everybody's pulling at about the same altitude and so you have people all around you that are also under canopy so once you get your canopy good to go, you're good. But then you have to worry about collision yep. with other jumpers. And I'll never forget, man, doing a night jump, one of my first ones, and and one of my buddies comes by me, and he doesn't see me until he's right on top of me, dude. And if you collide under canopy, the canopies will likely become entangled. It's a death sentence for at least one person. It's usually a death sentence. And this dude turns at the last minute. And it was like something off a Batman movie. I just heard... And I was like, holy crap. And I could see the boat. I could see the Swick boat down in the ocean, which was where we were supposed to land. You know what I did? I steered the opposite direction. I said, I am getting away from these people. And and you know what? I know I can swim. If I get to the water, I'm going to cut this chute away, and I'll swim a freaking mile to that boat if I have to. But I am not holding this landing pattern. It's the freakiest mess on earth, man. I I know everybody wants to hear special forces stuff. I'm going to tell one more 80-second story and why it's so horrible jumping 
state line. Every year they used to do a thing called Purple Dragon because of the 18th Airborne Corps uh, is a dragon, right? That's mm-hmm. the thing. Purple Dragon was the name of the uh, event. And this event was literally thousands, like the whole division, all support elements, everybody was was doing a, a mass tactical airborne infill. So there was somewhere, usually these things have somewhere in the neighborhood of 10, 12, 15 planes full of paratroopers and multiple passes. So on any on one drop, you know, and you know how planes stack when they when they do that. Yeah. So you got the first plane at whatever altitude, then they're offset by whatever, and then the next one's up a little higher. That way jumpers don't get run over by an airplane. Uh, but all these dudes, and on a mass tack, you got jumpers going out at the same time each door. Well, they're supposed to be offset. But uh, so you got 64 dudes jumping out of an airplane Another airplane right behind it with 64 dudes. Another airplane right behind it with 64 dudes. Another airplane right behind it with 64 dudes. I mean, you got hundreds of dudes the in, just in the littered. air at the same exact time. It's an awesome sight now. It's an awesome sight. <laughs> From the ground, I bet it is, yeah. <laughs> but it's da- like entanglements just everywhere. Now, is it a death sentence to get entangled with another? It depends on if the one of the canopies collapse or not mm-hmm. but usually I, i've seen entanglements where both canopies stayed inflated mm-hmm. i've seen in, entanglements where one canopy collapsed but the other stayed open um well but that'd be a hard landing i've never oh man i've never seen one where both canopies collapsed mm-hmm. and i've seen some entanglements where one collapsed and dudes throw out their reserve reserve that sometimes inflated and sometimes didn't. Uh, but dudes landing on top of, like, ambulances. Gosh, dog. Because man. they drop heavy equipment also first. Yeah. Like, the whole division's jumping. So, you got the um, 82nd had, like, some kind of mobile, like, high, I can't remember what they were, Sheridan things, whatever, big, big equipment. They would drop them first, and then you just got hundreds of dudes just coming. Mm. Now, at night. So, uh, yeah, the DZ's just littered DZ's with just equipment. littered with humans and equipment. <laughs> and then the next pass is just like right there, like you're over here like trying to, and you're looking up, making sure you ain't got feet coming down on your head. Um, I, I, I did a couple seen, of those, man. I nothing like that. I did a couple of those, and, and that's one of, <laughs> like, you're just worried about getting landed on. Oh, yeah. Or landing on somebody or something. I could only imagine, dude. And this was back, like I said, when you had to, you had to slip. There wasn't no toggles. Man. Um, and only one time ever did I land in the trees and I was able to get down. Uh, I was only, you know, five feet off the ground, kind of hanging weird, you know, but trees, a tree's better than a power line. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we had some power line landing. Oh man. Those are pretty, those yeah. are pretty hairy. Um, so just, uh, I, I, obviously we don't have time to cover your entire career yeah i'm sorry Um, i get off no man no i love it man uh i just want to hear whatever if it's um if it's uh some of your major lessons learned if it's uh your your favorite deployment um i just i want to take something away from that that time man well 
during my SF time, obviously, to me, the best job in the Army is being an SF team sergeant. I like having the uh, – you get a lot of autonomy in SF for, like, your training calendar and all that. There's pros and cons to that because the command, they might bless off on your training calendar, but then they didn't got no bones about scratching your training for some other stuff. You yeah. Know? But um, you get a lot of autonomy – and if you got a good relationship with your team leader, which I was, I was really blessed. Uh, I'm going to shout out to Greg Prislipsky if 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 you ever hear this. I called him the beautiful mind. He, he was a uh, one of the smartest dudes I know, and for quiet, right? You don't hear that with officers. Yeah. This dude only spoke when he needed to say something, and when he said it, it was legit, right? Mm-hmm. He was a smart guy, and and. Our last deployment to Afghanistan, which also was my favorite deployment because I was a team sergeant, we had a, you know, we got into a firefight and it was like a nine hour firefight. Gosh, dog. And it had lulls and peaks and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this dude, the, oh, we had a combat controller with us too. But Greg was sitting on a little camp seat, like in the middle. We were, we were holed up in a, uh, a school an Afghan school, abandoned school because it had good wall. It was a good sort of easy to defend sort of place. Mm-hmm. We were held up there and we started taking mortars and rockets and, or uh, RPGs and stuff. But the only place he could get reception to talk to battalion and to talk to uh, everybody else was in this one spot in the middle of the damn yard. Gosh, dog. And uh, <laughs> this dude was sitting there and he had a hand on each hand mic. You know, and he had the dual peltors, and he's talking, he's talking. And that's why I called him a beautiful mind, because you never saw any emotion on his face. Yep. He never raised his voice or never got flustered when he was talking. He was just calling calling the plays, man. And uh, I'm running around, and I'm directing traffic. Team Sergeant is kind of what I used to call the yard boss, right? Like, mm-hmm. on the objective, you're the guy making sure people where they need to be, putting the right people in the right spots putting the right team on the right thing, this and that. And I'm out here in the yard doing my thing, and a goddamn rocket hit seven meters from Greg. It's a big blast, and it's on it's on video because our terp, one of our terps was scared shitless. As soon as it started, he ran into the building, and he, and he had a GoPro on. Yeah. And he looked back out the building at that time. That's when it exploded. Wow. And you can man. see a little silhouette of me kind of off in there standing up. And you can see a silhouette of Greg kind of sitting down. That dude didn't flinch. And I was <laughs> Holy like, smokes, and, and when you're man. around dudes like that, right? Yeah. You can't. You got you to step up. You can't, like, you can't quit or you can't. Yeah. Not do what you're supposed to do. Yeah. He's setting a standard. When you, when you see something like that, mm-hmm. you just like, uh, so anyway, I love Greg, man. He, he was a, one of the best team leaders ever. Um, he went on. So, and you don't see this in SF often at all. He was a captain. So instead of going to major, you know, taking a company or doing whatever, being an S3, he went to the warrant officer course. Because warrant officers get spend more time on the team. Yep. So he went to the warrant course, and came, I think he come out as a W two, maybe a W three. He went over to first battalion, 
and I'm pretty sure they made him a team leader, a warrant team leader, which is kind of rare, but that's what a warrant does is takes the team in the absence of a captain mm-hmm. or an event of a split team. The warrant commands one, the captain commands the other. Anyway, uh, yeah, Greg, he was awesome, and that was a great deployment. Um, and we, I, I got to say something on that too, Edgar. What Edgar is telling you right here, <clears throat> he's teaching you a lesson, and that lesson is your ability to control your emotions and your actions regardless of circumstance is what sets you apart from all other humans. Absolutely. And and this you you are you might be at home freaking out about a freaking flat tire or your 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 uh whatever your computer broke or you're freaking out about this crap, man. And Edgar just told you a story of of his teammate that literally was in a nine-hour firefight with rockets landing around him, and he was able to control his emotions and his actions, and that's probably a big reason you guys got out of there and accomplished the mission that day. This is key, man. That's a key, key lesson. So we we came away. We lost two partner force guys on that. Uh, The team, we came away unscathed. Now, this was a point of contention later because my warrant officer on my team was like, man, we should uh, – I'm going to put everybody in for award for this. And it got into a big – I don't know if Navy does the same as the Army, but it's all very subjective stuff, right? Um, and one small conversation that kind of passed that heated me up with my battalion sergeant major was, uh, well, nobody got killed, so what were y'all doing? I was like, we were doing everything right. And yeah, I, you did your I job. I got heated, right? I got yeah. real heated on that. At any rate, uh, we all got um, our comms with Valor on that one. We lost two partner force guys. Another got injured, uh, severely injured. My medic, um, Taylor Todd. Shout out to Taylor Todd. I, I love that dude. Uh, I, I take, he was my number two guy. Mm-hmm. Next, We rode in the same truck all the time. We were on... If I fell into a cell, I fell into a cell with him. 18 Delta. 18 Delta. Best medics man, in the military. He, he was on the job, man. He was, And he was cool as a cucumber, too. Me and him had such a good dynamic. When those dudes got, got shot up, we, he went out and and drug them in. We, a handful of us did, but he, he was just out there like, nah, he was t- handling it. We got back into the, into the little foyer there where we had our little aid station. And his and I, our dynamic was was on, man. It was like a like a clock. If I needed to know, because we had to get we had to get aircraft in, right? You call it in too early, uh, and it's sitting there, vulnerable, right? Yeah. You call it in too late, and you got your, your guy is dead. Yeah. Uh, so there, and you know we had to calculate spin up time and all these things, right? And so every now and then I would just give him, hey, Tay, what do you need? He would give me he would give me a time. I, I need seven minutes. Then I'd go tell Greg, my, the team leader, uh, hey, Greg, he, he's going to be ready to package this guy. We're going to be ready to move in seven minutes. And no no kidding. So when we, got, when we, when we met back these dudes, we were still under fire, right? We are still going back and forth. And uh, one, of my, one of my guys, we were going to take an uh, MRAP up to secure the airfield, uh, the, air, the, the, the HLZ. Mm-hmm which was probably a couple hundred meters up the road, but it was the closest HLZ. 
he dumps it into a ditch front end it mm. uh uh h uh, uh whatever the heck it was called mrap mrap yeah f- you ain't getting that thing out that's heavy so, no over the radio all he said was roll over roll over my mind starts scrambling right i'm thinking now i got five dudes probably damaged maybe dead uh because i thought it was a, a no kidding rollover so I, man that was the only little internal panic mode. I, obviously i didn't show anybody that but yeah that was the little internal panic mode and then about 30 seconds later my senior bravo comes over the radio he's like nah we're on foot we're good so, oh man. man so they went up secured the hlz tay got the got we, we got both of the, the guys packaged up, and no kidding, man, we were, we were moving to the HLZ on foot. So now you're talking 250, 300 meters moving with litter. Uh, you ain't moving fast. We had security up front, security. No, it wasn't fast. Uh, and as that helicopter was landing, man, we were, we were hitting HLZ. It, it, it worked out perfect. And, you know, I, I, I attribute that to Tay being a, understanding what he's doing. How long things take, and I attribute it to Greg understanding spin up time for the bird and when when to make the call. You know, I was just a go between. So that was that was one of the most the smoothest combat actions, right? Like, yeah. Because meanwhile, dudes are still back here in a firefight. Yeah, uh, and we were going away from the fight. Now we were still taking a little bit, but it, it was like residual stuff. But um. That, that was one of my that was one of my most memorable experiences. Will, dude, you know, you talk about you, you tell those stories about those guys doing think about you guys listening, think about the complexity of that job that Tay was doing that day, yeah. that Edgar was doing that day. It's like this is this is what I this is the value mm-hmm. that you bring, Edgar. It's like the the complexity of that, I believe, United States Special Forces are composed of the highest functioning, best cream of the crop human beings on earth. For men to be able to do that job in that situation, at that level of complexity, it's just, it's all that's awesome. Testament, man. Mm-hmm. It's the U.S. Special Forces. All, all, well, special operations in general. It's, it, special operations, and we're talking about all of SOCOM, right? All the whole force, MARSOC, all the way to the AFSOC dudes and everybody, uh, have pulled the most of the weight of the Afghan, right? Now, I ain't taking nothing away from conventional forces, but at some point they got sidelined. Yeah. Politically, like, well, we're not going to have. That's not on that. them. Special yeah. ops is always out there. People think it's some kind of weird thing, boots on the ground in Ukraine. 10th crew's been in Ukraine. I was in Ukraine in 08. <laughs> I mean, yeah. now, was I over there fighting against Russians? No, I was over there training special forces guys. But people don't understand, you know, there's there's dudes out there all, all the time. All over, man. Everywhere. Yeah. 24-7. Countries you ain't never even heard ain't of. never even heard of. There's dudes out there doing complex stuff. Yes. Um with people who may or may not be resistant to it. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yep. So one of my last trips was in Moldova. 
I didn't know anything about Moldova, uh, <laughs> yeah. except that I learned that it was, everybody thinks Ukraine's the poorest country in Europe. Moldova is the poorest country in Europe. Uh, and even even down on the uh, the waterfront down there, Ukraine come up and cut Moldova off from the, <laughs> from the shore. <laughs> anyway, over there training those dudes and, and part of the population of Moldova, I don't know, people don't know about Transnistria, but it's Russian-occupied and it has been. Uh, part of Moldova, I mean, they're pro-Russian, man. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't. So even cruising around, nobody, not everybody was happy to see. That's right. Big uh, freedom fighter, uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was, it was, it's weird, and you're always doing weird stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot to it. Um, well, guys, let's take a quick break, and then uh, Edgar, when we come back, man, I want to talk a little bit about uh, about your faith and right. uh, and what you're doing now, man. Okay. So let's take a pee break. Well, we're back at you guys. Um, Edgar, I want to, I just want to talk to you a little bit about, I just want to hear your testimony essentially because, uh, you know, when we talked, when we met at the range the other day, I uh, picked up on a few cues just as, uh, as who you, who you are. Um, I could tell you were, you, you were making the effort to, uh, not cuss and yeah. and you know at the it, we got done training and and you talked to us a little bit about a a uh, a local congregation that you had found yeah. and and so I, I assume you're a servant of Christ, um, and uh, I'd like to just hear you, you hear your testimony why why when and uh, and what what's your what's your faith mean to you man Yeah, well, to a degree, you know I'm. I'm a flawed. I'm a flawed human being. Well, every one uh, of us are, and yeah. I'm glad we are because if we if we weren't, we wouldn't need Jesus, right? Yeah. And so all of our flaws point us back to Him. Yeah. That's why they exist. Well, if this world is the best that we can do, son, we yeah, we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we're in trouble if this is the best we got. Yep. Not that it ain't great. It's awesome, but it, man, lots of problems. Yeah. Uh. So. My my wife, we've always gone to church on on and off and all that. Um, I've always re- rejected uh, organized religion, uh, really, because uh, I used to when I was young. I would project on you know, like a preacher. You expect to be f- perfect uh, yeah. when you're young. You know what I mean. Um, and I have a very dubious uh, sort of story to touch on that but uh, i had a crazy crazy aunt that she used to run a a whorehouse in uh marietta and i was over at my cut i was over there me and my cousin were very close and i was looking through clientele book just waiting on my cousin to get ready we were gonna go mess around and i saw my goddamn one of the deacons of my church i saw him on, on there yeah, I was like, "What?" Mm-hmm. I started flipping. So there's two, two or three senior church members that were hitting the uh, whorehouse on, on on the side. Yeah. Now, I don't judge. I gotta be honest with you. Uh, living in Germany when I was a youngster, man, uh, I, I did that too. But um, it just made me. It soured me. Uh, now, as I as you grow older, you understand everybody's got their own flaws and everything like that 
And and just because you do you got a vice or whatever, don't mean you can't impart some wisdom or, or help or whatever it is. So, mm-hmm. um, for me, I've always it's just been a sort of a foundational thing. Um, on, on one combat deployment, um, we were getting jocked up and we were going to to do a thing, and uh, one of the support dudes, Jalen Truitt, I love that guy. He we were good buddies, um, and he was like, "Hey, Ed." He, he just pulled me off the side. I was literally on my way out the door. He's like, Ed, don't. And I was cut, cutting jokes and everything. Don't you get nervous, man? And I, I just looked at him. I didn't even put any thought into it. I was like, no, nah, man, I believe in Jesus. I kept moving. That made a profound effect on him. I didn't think nothing of it. Yeah. Um, but how can you go into combat without having some sort of belief system like that, right? Yeah. Like, I strongly believe that uh, it's already written, right, your time. Whether it's a school bus running you down, whether it's COVID, or whether jumping out of airplane, or whether it's in combat, your time's already, I think, mm-hmm. your time's already written, because it says that, right, mm-hmm. um, in the Bible. And I've always stuck with that. That's why I don't mind doing dangerous stuff. I was on a mountain team, and I'm scared of heights. <laughs> it took me a long time to get over it. But I still always believe that, like, yeah, when it's your time, it's your time. Yeah. Um, and I and I attribute that. That's not a, a great religion. That's not a, necessarily a, a foundational religious thing, but that's what it says in the Bible. And and I believe it. Um, I I believe things happen for a reason, even the bad things. Um, so, yeah, uh, I go to church here sometimes over at uh, We the Church. Um, the pastor's, you know, he's a younger dude, younger than me. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's funny he's personable uh, and I like it in Colorado Springs the reason we started going to the church that we went to was the pastor was a, from Georgia <laughs> and he <laughs> okay. was a University of Georgia athlete yeah. um, moved out to Colorado you know did his studies and all that and uh, became a preacher out there um, so I related to him you know he, uh, I'm not a much of a hunter I told you I was a city boy but you know I, I related to him yeah, you know what I mean. Um, but I don't depend on some other dude to give me my my spiritual juice. Yeah, um, and I find it a lot do outside. I I find it in work. I find it in dealing with people. Um, I'm a hard, I consider myself a hard guy. My wife, she's always on me about being hard. Uh, uh, and I don't advertise. I don't say it, but you know, if I'm out by myself. I see some dude sitting on the corner. Looks like he's hungry. I'll, I'll give him give him my food or whatever. Not because you don't get any points, right? You don't build points up. But I feel like you know you help where you can help, do what you can do. Uh, I don't go around trying to convert people to Christianity, but I point to where's your where what's your foundation? Yeah, where does it come from? Yeah. And you live it. Uh, I mean, I, I can I can see your you I, I, what little time we spent together. I can see you're you're doing your best to be a a good human. Yeah, a, that, and yeah. you know, and and I think that shows. And and I think that's a pretty powerful that single comment that you made to your teammate that day when he said, "You don't ever get nervous." And you said, "No, I believe in Jesus, man." And you and and that little statement that you didn't think anything about 
made a profound impact yeah. on that person. Well, you say you're not, you're not going around trying to convert people to Christianity, but by living it, essentially you are. Like, yeah. you know, it may not be this overwhelming active effort, but that comment yeah. you made made an impact on that guy. Yeah. Well, I don't know how many people would identify me out of a crowd as a, as a Christian, a good Christian, but uh, yeah, you got to, to me, it's all about your foundation. Your, your values come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, didn't, they, you didn't make them up on your own. They came from somewhere. And if you look at, at, at the, the good values that we have, should have as humans, it's all biblical. Yes, it is. Uh, it's all biblical. Yep. I got a, I got one of my, uh, I got, I keep saying best buddy, man. I got like five, five dudes on my like friend for life. They called me. I'd go right this second type list. Yep. And one of them claims atheist. He, he claims he's an atheist, but yeah, I, I think he's full of it when, uh, we mm-hmm. go we go back and forth on it all the time. Mm-hmm. He's very much a I need to see science scientific proof type guy. Yeah, yeah. But I, he's recently had a, a baby girl. She's about a year old now, so I suspect he's probably softening up a little bit. Because where where does his he's a good dude? Mm-hmm. Where does his values come from? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I ask him all the time. I was like, well, why do you think it's not okay to you know, murder people <laughs> or whatever? Or yeah, steal, steal people's stuff. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Oh yeah, hundred uh, percent. Yeah, who are who are who are we to make the rules? And I think what you're getting what you're getting at right there, Edgar, is if we don't acknowledge that there is a standard of truth outside of ourselves, if we don't acknowledge that Scripture is our standard of what is true about us as humans and about uh, what is good, what is bad, and all that stuff, right? Uh, if we don't acknowledge that as truth, then there can be no truth because truth has to be a, a yeah. standard, right? It can't right. change. Because beyond that, then what? It's just beyond all made that, up. Like it, you that's exactly right. Up. That's exactly right. And what man. are you basing that? When you make something up, what are you basing it on? Exactly. Right? There's got there's, your feelings. There's a standard there. Yeah. And yeah, I believe bi- bi- the biblical word is a standard for sure. Yep. It's the plumb line. And everybody that does outside of that or whatever they're you know they're deviating but i think they know too you know Mm -hmm. i i have to ask about your wife is your wife a christian yeah oh yeah because it's it's really interesting to me that how long have you guys been married since 1996 you know okay one 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 wife oh yeah it's interesting to me that you guys stayed together yeah through a 24 year career yeah in the army, well, and no fault of my own. <laughs> That's all her, man. Yeah, man. she's a hard. Now she calls me hard. That's a hard woman. Yeah, put up with my clown show. Cause in my twenties and thirties, man, I was wild, wild and crazy. Uh, it took me a hot minute to to figure it out. Uh, I I I get on my son's case. My oldest son, he's twenty seven, and I bust his chops all the time about he's got to do things the hard way. I give him the answer, and he'll go do the opposite, figure it out on his own, and then fix it. Yeah. But I was exactly the same. So everything I've done, I've done the hard way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, good on her for, for hanging in there. Uh, for me, yeah, the, like divorce for it was never on the table. I, and for her, too. Like, that's just, it was never on, the, even in the hardest of times. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The hardest of times. Uh, divorce was never on the table, man. Because we wanted to present 
and we didn't always do it perfectly, but we wanted to present uh, uh, as close to normal or stable, consistent mother and father to the to our kids. Yeah, because they became now. Yes, our, we're priority to each other, but they were the priority, right? Yeah, making our kids well-rounded, sane humans, functional, and and so they can have a happy you know, life and all that. So our kids were very important to us. Now, me being gone as much as I I was, that's sort of counter to that. But that was the job. I mean that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to say the military saved me from anything or, or whatever, but like it helped me stay on a. I needed discipline in my life. Let yeah. me put it that way. I needed structure. In fact, funny story. When I joined the army, we're going around the. And basic training, drill sergeants asking all the kids why they joined the army. And he looked at me, and I dead f- straight face said, "Because I need a structured lifestyle." The Joker's eyes got big, and he went to the next guy. <laughs> everybody else was—he <laughs> didn't hear that very often. Did everybody he? was telling all their little high school and college this and that. Yeah, yeah. Like, because I need a structured lifestyle, man. And that Joker just moved on. But that's what I needed some structure, man. Yeah. Because uh, I was a I was a bicycle messenger and a bouncer. That was my job. Yeah. But before my kid and after my first son was born. And I was drinking and fighting and chasing women. And yeah. And that was it. I think the uh when I was in the teams, I think the divorce rate was somewhere around eighty oh, percent. It's phenomenal SF two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's somewhere, yeah, right there around eighty percent. And it's always been an interesting thing to me, um, of how how loyal we were to one another at the team, yeah. But how much people lacked loyalty to their to their spouse, yeah. It's just been an interesting dynamic, and I, I have I ha, I don't have any conclusion on it. I, I haven't figured it out other than uh, I, I guess the point I, the the point I'm making here is that for you to maintain uh, uh, your marriage and also raise children amongst uh, the lifestyle that you have lived is I, I'm making the point that it is a testament to who you are, man. Well, I mean, yeah. and, and who your wife is yeah, too. More, more, more my wife for sure. That's a big deal. Uh, man. More my wife for sure. But like I said, she's a, she's a hard old girl and, and thank God. She, I can't wait to meet her one day, man. Yeah. She's so she's part Cherokee. Um, and, However hard she is, her mom is twice as hard. <laughs> mm. But uh, yeah, yeah, just divorce was never on the table, man. We That's we the key. always fought through it. That is the key, man. Uh, There's times we hated each other's guts, man. But you know, there was a there was a time in my marriage, Edgar, when I was active duty, and my wife is a recovering addict, and um, she was she was down just in the at the absolute bottom with uh with her battle with this disease that is addiction and um i wanted to i wanted to quit man i just and and i'm not a quitter yeah and and i called blake and i said blake i don't know how much longer i can do this anymore man i'm every man has his breaking point that was my mindset you know and uh blake said well chad you don't have a choice yeah right what what is that? That's a that is a biblical standard, right? Chad, you don't have a choice. Yeah. 
You made a covenant before God. And so that has been my same mindset from that day. Yeah. Is quitting is off the table. All right. Uh, and what's interesting about marriage when you take quitting off the table is it's actually your, it's actually been my biggest opportunity to be more like Christ because you have to serve another human. Yeah, you do. Uh, and, and you, we would never do that. So if it weren't for, we would never do that. So, like everything in marriage, especially, but everything, you're either part of the problem or part of the solution. Yeah, that's it. So if you take quitting off the table, the only options to solve the problem, not or be the problem, I guess, but. Yeah, it's the foundational uh, yeah, element. Yeah, that's that's it. So that's where me and her both were at. You know, begrudgingly most of the time, but nah, some of the time. Well, you uh, know, our our listeners, we got a lot of listeners too that have children, and uh, they Blake is the only one that has children. I, I have, I, I probably will never have kids. Uh, it's in it's in God's hands. If the Holy Spirit places it on my heart one day to have kids. I will listen to that yeah. call, but right now he ain't calling me. And so <laughs> a lot of our listeners uh, uh, reach out and ask Blake, hey, man, what? Uh, talk a little bit more about raising kids. And I want to I, I give you the opportunity, Edgar, also to, um, to talk about raising kids uh, amidst a, you know, yeah. a, a very difficult – because a, a lot of people that listen have kids, and they also have yeah. – jobs and they're having to function at a high capacity and they're gone all yeah. the time i mean what are what are some takeaways well from man, that, man one be, being a, a dad's one of the greatest things ever um all my kids are about four years apart so my oldest boy is 27 uh my other boy is 22 and my daughter's 19 <clears throat> wait a second is it 22 or 23 i'm probably gonna get a call later uh, and so we had that space to, you know, molt for, to kind of molt, especially my first boy, but w that was when times were lean and I was still wild and crazy. So my first boy, he, he probably got to see some behavior that maybe was, was not so good. Then we tune, we, we kind of try to tune up as we go. Right. But having the kids and watching them. Cause they're your likeness, right? They're they're in your likeness. Um, they're the best mirror, aren't they? That's right. Uh, and me and my older boy are exactly alike. Um, I don't admit it to him as much, but it's it's absolutely true. Um, he's gone through some hard times, some addiction issues uh, a few years ago, and I'm I. One of the things I am thankful about for that is one day I came home from work. And he's sitting on the couch with my wife. My wife's in tears. And when I walked in, she just, he said, Dad, I need help. So he came to me. You know, and yeah. I can't be more thankful for that. Instead of just thinking he couldn't. Yep. Because I was hard on him. Uh, I softened up over the years, but I was, I was hard on him. And I don't mean like spanking him, beating him as a, as a youth, but I mean discipline-wise. I was, I was, I was, I was hard on him. So anyway, I, that's probably where, and, and genetically, his kind of independent spirit come from. 
But the fact that he came to me, I felt like that was in some way a success. I felt like a failure initially. Like, why Why was he doing drugs? Uh, but I, f- I felt it was somewhat of a parenting success that he just, he would come to me. Mm-hmm. And I think all my kids would with problems. Uh, my middle boy's he's a little more rational. He, he's got a different personality than my older boy. And, you know, he's a – he thinks things out. He's more of a critical thinker. He's got. He's getting married in July, in Colorado, which is awesome. Um, to a girl who's in an astrophysics program, uh, smarter than probably everybody in my house put together. Mm-hmm. Um, not never never an ounce of problem out of him. Um, as far as problems go, raising them together, you know, they would fight and stuff like that. But I never saw parenting as a huge struggle. They were always the priority. Like, as soon as they were born, man, like, their priority. Mm-hmm. And unlike some younger parent, like, my wife's 23, I think. And I was, tw- well, my wife's 24, I was 23 when my first boy. So we were, that's not old, but that's older, right? A lot of young parents, I've seen this, and my mom was this way, and uh, rest her soul, we, we had problems over the years. Young parents tend to resent the kids for from taking something away from them. Uh, you know, whether it's, you know, just freedom in general, I guess. But, um, I never felt that way at all. My wife never felt that way at all. She is 100% all the time mom. And that's, uh, I admire her for that. She don't do anything for herself ever. (laughs) Even when she has time, she's always angling up how to help the kids do yeah. something and right now she's grandma so my older boy has a uh has two step kids and his own uh little one-year-old boy who's living in our house and oh man she, grandma's uh doing doing the grandma thing man <laughs> and uh i think once they move out she's gonna she's gonna be poopy it's gonna be a hard transition i yeah. tell you what me and that woman have only lived together alone for probably two months of our life. Wow, man. Yeah. Because when we were young, she was still living at home. I was living downtown Atlanta. Like, I didn't even have a car. I was on a bicycle. She hated to come visit because she hated the city, one. And when she did come visit, there was gunshots and everything all over the place. So she was like, nah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the boy was born. Um, we We didn't live together when he was born. I joined the army. I was in training. Got out of training, uh, moved to Fort Bragg, and, and we had and we had the boy. So we never lived alone. Yeah. And even when we first moved to Fort Bragg, it was the first time we lived together, and there was some transition time there, mm-hmm. which was pretty rough. Um, first time we've lived alone together is when we moved here in 2021, November 2021. It was probably three or f- two or three months before my daughter came back home from college. Mm-hmm. Wow, man! So I ain't, I ain't ashamed to say it. We we like to lay naked around the pool in the sunshine. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. So bro. that lasted for about two months. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing that you said, Edgar, that I, I want to just. You may not have the answer, but I'm hoping you had some insight because uh, it was pretty profound when you made the statement that you 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 feel confident that um, any 
three of your children, if they had a problem, could come to you, would come to you, and uh, and and seek help or or whatever it is they needed. And you obviously saw that happen with your oldest boy. Yeah. Um, how did you create that environment for them, man? I well, it wasn't nurturing. I can tell you that. My wife's the nurturer. I'm the disciplinarian, but I approach everything from a logical if you do this this will happen if you do that that'll happen type thing yeah i like to think of myself as a critical thinker um and that's how i lay it out to the kids i do it unemotionally um and my daughter especially comes to me for some she wants some answers on some things mm-hmm. dad this is going on what and i give her a logical thought out answer mm-hmm. so it's not when they want when they want a, a clear, decisive course of action or options even, because especially with my older boy, I say, if you do this, this is the most likely thing that's going to happen, and if you do this, this, and and, and it's come true every single time. So uh, they know that I that, and plus they know I've done a lot of bull crap as a youth. Yeah, um, I don't hide the fact that I was out there drinking and fighting and all that. Yeah. And uh, I may have been in jail once or twice uh, for, for fighting and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. So the, I was the an angry that, youth as well. The fact that you don't hide that, I yeah. think that's a huge key, man. So uh, uh, being honest with them is the way, you know what I mean? And I don't, I try to be, you know, one of the parental challenges is being a hypocrite, right? They look at you as a hypocrite. Yep. You tell me this, but you you do this. I try to, I try to stay out of that zone. I try to do that in life. I, Mm-hmm. I don't practice or I practice what I preach type thing. Uh, so I think they know they're going to get the straight answer. Mm-hmm. Um, they go to their mom for loving, you know, and all that <clears throat> and, and comfort. They don't come to me for comfort. I'm, I'm, I'm bad about that still. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I try to give them the critical thought process, help them work the problem out. I, you know, and that's it. it it's, and not if I want to say me and my daughter are like friends. There's always the dad component there. Like she knows I'm because we we butt heads sometimes, especially on school. Uh, she hates school. I don't agree that college is necessarily that valuable, but she's got an entrepreneurial spirit, so mm-hmm. she she don't do what she wants. Uh, she she got a job makes money, so yeah. Uh, but I th- I think it's just. We've always been close, man. All my, our family, you know, uh, we don't hold back stuff on each other. You know what I'm saying? Um, if you come in with a bad day, you can say, yeah, you know, I got a bad day. And, I love it, man. Uh, we, we just don't hold back things from each other. I love it. We share. A sound advice, ain't it, Blake? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I'm taking notes over here. Yeah. Edgar. Yeah. Uh, everything, everything to me, if you can't say it in front of everybody, uh, and most people, some people, like with drugs, you don't always want to bring that out in front of everybody. But literally, he came to me and mom together. Yeah. It's like, hey, this is a problem. Yeah. And his siblings knew it too, in, in fact. So it's not a secret. Everybody knew. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so that's that's what it is being open. And it's not necessarily being accepting or whatever. There's a difference between acceptance and tolerance and all that. Yep. But I always unconditionally love my kids and my wife. Like no matter what, so and they know that if you have that, yeah, if you know that, everything else is kind of a 
um, mm. side piece. You know, Amen, like, brother. Whatever. So they know, and I know they love me unconditionally too. You know what I mean? That's solid, brother. Well, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Osprey Shooting Solutions and what you're yeah, doing now, Ed, Edgar, because, um, you know, I think what people need to understand is you should train with as many different credible instructors as you possibly can, all right? Because all of us have blind spots as, as instructors. We have strengths and we have weaknesses. And so if you are dedicated to becoming a, a good shooter, you should train with as many credible shooting instructors as you possibly can. Whatever the skill is you're trying to learn, don't get pigeonholed with just one person, all right? Because you're going to end up having the same blind spots as that person that's teaching you has. And that's what I love about what you're doing and us being able to come out and be a part of the um, the challenge, OSS challenge that you put on. Um, so talk to me about what you do. Talk to the listeners about what you do. Yeah. So... On that note, before I go into myself, yeah, as many different people. So me and Dennis, uh, Force Solutions, we do things together. Uh, me and James are trying to set up. James uh, 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 Manning, Manning, trying to uh, front Forge Tactical, he calls his. We're trying to do stuff together. Uh, when you look at, at your contemporaries as um, partners as opposed to, to competitors, because the whole idea is to spread the, the the wealth, right? Spread the sport, spread the defense. Uh, like I said before, I think everybody should be armed. Yeah. By default, everybody should be trained from professionals. Yep. Um, and we are professionals. Uh, so that's what Osprey OSS is, and I, and I named it Osprey Shooting Solutions for two reasons. One, OSS is the precursor to Special Forces. And I, I'm not a history buff per se, but uh, I, I like uh, especially uh, military history. And uh, Osprey, one of my mentors down in uh, Tampa, um, Dan Bernard, and he's uh, he works at SOCOM, and, and he also is uh, like on a board of directors or president of a, of a shooting club down there. And this joker... We'd be out for lunch or something, and he'd look up and start naming off the scientific names to various birds. It was a closet bird watcher. <laughs> but then he would change the subject quickly and carry on. <laughs> but he hit me with some crazy stuff. Like, what yeah. the heck is he talking about? Turns out, yeah, he's bur So there's a lot of ospreys down in Florida. Mm -hmm. So that's that's why I chose Osprey Shooting Solutions as, as the name of the company, as a nod to him and as a nod to uh, – Office of Strategic Services, and he was also a Green Beret and a Delta guy. Okay, um, long since retired. <clears throat> um, competitive shooter, you know, he's all about building the youth uh, sports, youth leagues, and mm -hmm. stuff like that. He brought my he brought Ezekiel, my 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 younger son, out for a three month uh, internship in Florida. Once we moved back to Colorado, um, he he went out to Florida. Paid for his uh, his stay there for three months, and Zeke worked all the major matches, and he also trained under Shannon Smith, who's a 
pro shooter down in Florida. Well, he's a national champion. Yeah. But he's a pro shooter, former ranger, uh, and all that. So he got to go do an internship with Shannon and Dan uh, from, from Dan's uh, shooting club, which was – and now Zeke's a, a competitive uh, USPSA. He shoots IDPA too, but he's my number two guy for the company, but he's still in Colorado. So mm-hmm. when we talk on the phone, it's all poopy because he wants to be out here <laughs> running stuff. But, oh, I bet, yeah. You know, um, and I want him here because he – that, that kid – we made a joke, and we used to call him SRM, and we had that on his business card, SRM, Senior Range Monkey, because <laughs> he made the ranges run like a finely oiled motor. Yeah. And when I was out there without, with somebody else or by myself, man, uh, dropping the ball here and there. Yeah. He was out there doing all the background work, man, and, uh, and then he's good when we have a class and we got somebody who's – Struggling a little bit. Yeah. He's he's the side guy, you know, pull him off and start working with him. Anyway, that, yep, Ezekiel Mills is my my boy. Uh my number two guy for the company here. So my passion is is teaching. I'm trying to reach out to the working class folks, right? Not everybody can pay five hundred dollars for a course or whatever. Uh so Dennis kind of busts my chops a lot. He says I give out a lot of information for not a lot of financial gain. Yeah. But by the time you go buy 500 rounds, I mean, dang, man, the average guy who works down at the Coca-Cola factory or whatever, he's already, you know. Yeah. Now I got to wait till next month to be able to afford to shoot them. Yeah. So I'm trying to do things on a regular guy level, trying to get people who will go buy a $300 gun and never train with it. Mm-hmm. I want I want to. If somebody shows up to my class with a high point pistol, I will advise them, but that's what they'll train with. Yep. Um, bring what you got. That's my motto. Bring what you got. And uh, so I want to get the average guys. Uh, one of my passions is training cops because uh, I got a love hate relationship with law enforcement, but I want those jokers to be proficient gun handlers. Yeah. Because when they show up to my house, Every 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 unit I train, top unit. So if you, if you do a no knock at the Mills house, the first four dudes are done. So you better be right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's a joke halfway, but I want those guys to be on the job, to be able to discern an armed or unarmed person or whatever. Mm-hmm. I want. I don't want some dude showing up. I've seen lots of cops with lots of poor gun handling skills, finger on the trigger, pointing at you. Yeah. Now look, man, like. I get, I get it, but I've also there's videos out there of nervous cops popping one off by accident into a suspect. So yeah, um, that's one of my f- passions is to help bring a, a higher standard. Mm-hmm. If you've seen some of the police uh, like shooting uh, quals, they're all really weak. Yeah, yeah, they just don't they don't get the training that, that, they, that they that they deserve. Yeah. That yeah. they deserve. That's right, and that's. Uh, Similar to the military, that's a leadership thing. Like, if they're prioritizing your online training over your physical mm-hmm. lethal training, mm-hmm. like the one thing you should be a okay number one with is lethal, your lethal uh, stuff. That's what's gonna save your life because yeah. and someone else's. And I'm well. What that's what I'm saying is like when to use it and when not to. Mm-hmm. But when you need to use it, man, you need to be the best guy uh, at the match there. Yep. Yeah. 
Um, so anyway, prioritizing priorities of training. So I'm, I, you know, I haven't reached out to a lot of local agencies here yet, but um, down in Florida, I train a, a whole bunch of uh, police. I've trained a, a lot of individual cops here. Uh, one guy was a SWAT guy down in Douglas County. He, he got shot in an incident. So you can imagine after being shot that your perspective changes, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I want to I want to be better. Than this is real all of a sudden. Real deal. Yeah. Yep. Um, so that, um, I still train military too, but I'm, I'm really getting tired of traveling. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why, to me, it's all about the facility. I got a space to shoot. I can schedule whoever, whenever, however I want. If one dude shows up, then one dude shows up. Uh, in Colorado, I was using an indoor range that I had to pay. Yeah. And uh, if one dude showed up, I was losing <clears throat> money. Uh, so having your own spot, it's, it's easy breezy. I you've, like it. And you've done an awesome job, man. Mm-hmm. You've done an awesome job. I mean, the range setup that you created there, and you got your classroom down there. Yeah. I think we need a kill house. Uh, at some point, I, I got a plan for that. Okay, I figured you did because I saw a nice spot for a yeah. kill house down there, and uh, yeah, I got yeah, man, you did an awesome job setting that setting that uh, facility up. Uh, it, it's let me tell you something about Edgar and coming out to train with him or coming out to one of his events. You're gonna feel comfortable. It's gonna be safe. He's gonna do his job. As the RSO, range safety officer, and as your instructor, uh, I have the utmost faith in 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 you. Uh, just from the event, the, the event that we did, yeah. that was a big deal. I mean, yeah. there were a lot of moving parts. To a that, lot of moving parts, and you were there. You got, were there. Got to control when you got got guns on them. I call it the killing machine sometimes as a joke. Yeah, it's killing machine. Yep. Um, if you got people unknowns out there, you got to have control, man. Yep. And I'm a little bit of control freak anyway. It's also one of the five principles of patrolling, right? You gotta have control. Yep. Uh, and even when I run a hot range, it's still there's there's still a, a level of control, and not overbearing, right? Mm-hmm. Some people might not even know they're being controlled. <laughs> <clears throat> That's what Blake said. Uh, it's always interesting going to other people's ranges, and he mentioned it after we shot your event. Uh, it was controlled, but it was calm it it, what and blake even mentioned that man i've been out to some ranges where the rso is just 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 a a butthole man and just uh, it's not even fun no need for that you know exactly there's no need for that but but you got to be the right type of person you got to have the right personality to be able to calmly control and uh, create a safe environment which is uh, of the utmost importance uh, when we're out here training on the range. So, um, yeah, it was, that was an awesome dynamic, yeah. man. I try and, and safety brief has got to happen, right? That every time, all the time, no matter what. Um, but if you let people, if you make people understand why, yeah, right. Something's bad. And, and you ain't got to talk to them like they're 12 year olds to make them understand why. That's right. So if, if somebody, it goes a long way. Cause a lot of people come out, man, they don't know nothing. About yeah. It. Uh, I've had people never touch the gun. They want to, they come out to learn. Most of the time, they're the best students. They are the best students. Yeah, because they don't they don't have bad habits. Um, but making people understand why everything's going the way it's going, or you're doing what you're doing, or you're not doing something, goes a long way. So I try to cover that in a safety brief as much as possible. And you said I, I want to just hit real quick the why behind this, uh, the why behind 
we train people on the range. The why behind uh, why Edgar's doing what he's doing with Osprey Shooting Solutions. Uh, you made a comment at the event, and uh, you said uh, you said something about I like to go down. You, you were talking about I believe everybody should be armed, and then you said you know something about Atlanta. And one of the students said, "Well, that's why you don't go to Atlanta." And you said. That's freaking bullcrap. I'm a free American. I should be able to go. Tell me about I want that, go, brother. This is why yeah, we do that's right. this. That's right. I shouldn't have to be worried about taking my wife to go look at the house I grew up, grew up in. You know what I'm saying, or something like that. Yeah. Um, I should be able to go any dang where I want. I love the varsity. Now, fortunately, one's coming to Rome, but yeah. we, I, I like to go to the one on Fourth uh, Fourth uh, North Avenue right there. Yeah. Um, because I grew up in Atlanta, I'm nostalgic. My dad worked for the city of Atlanta streets and highways divisions for 30 odd years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm intimate with it, the streets of Atlanta, mm-hmm. right? I'm not going to not go somewhere out of fear. Yep. I might not go because I don't want to go to that restaurant, but not because I'm afraid some dude's going to yep. roll me up. And this, this skill that we're speaking of here, um, shooting, being proficient, with your uh, with your firearm, knowing how to carry, uh, knowing how to handle yourself, it is the great equalizer. Yeah, absolutely. It is the great equalizer. Absolutely. So you you know, it, it's a. Uh, I tell people that come out come out and shoot with us. I'm about to teach you the most sacred skill that I can possibly teach you. I can teach you a whole bunch of other stuff. I can teach you how to build a fire in the rain. I can teach you how to live in the wilderness. I can teach you how to uh, run or, or whatever it is. I can teach you a whole lot of stuff, but this is the most sacred skill yeah. that I can teach you because it's the great equalizer. Uh, it is. I use that and I use that exact phrase in, in all my women's courses. I use that because, you know, there's, there's a little bitty petite ladies. If a six-foot-four dude wants to grab her and manhandle her, he's going to, right? Yeah. Unless you got the equalizer with you. Knowing how to manage that lethality, that should bring it's and what the whole purpose of self defense is not being able to necessarily kill somebody. It's being able to stop them from hurting you. Yep. And that's the security. Most women, when you ask, well, what do you like about this dude? Well, he makes me feel secure and this and that. Well, you know, feel secure on your own. Yeah. Uh, and and every guy like not everybody's an MMA fighter, man. Like. Yeah. Uh, and even then, when some dude pulls a gun out, you've just become. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the disadvantage. Your jujitsu is useless. Yeah, it's useless. So, being able to protect yourself and your family—that's a big old comfort blanket to me. I, I mean, I yeah, because I don't feel scared to take to go anywhere. Me and my daughter love to go to Atlanta and mess around. Uh, we like to go hang out in little Five Points. We used to eat at Zesto's right there, but it closed down for whatever reason. But anyway, yeah, there's Atlanta's always had crime. It's just been on the news and everybody thinks oh crime crime spiking right now yeah whatever uh so what (laughs) i love that mindset dude i love that dude that's solid word and uh edgar where can people uh find you follow you sign up for courses come train with you uh osprey shooting solutions.com um and you can get to all my socials from there but you know instagram and facebook or whatever uh but the website is where you can sign up for and if i got courses up able to sign they're they're on the main page just scroll down because i do featured my featured courses if you go to the website store every you know they're all in there as well 
I'll attach the link to Edgar's website in the show notes of this yeah. episode. So y'all scroll down, check him out. And I might have said this, man. I'm very proud of my website. I put yeah, lot, yeah. I put a nice. lot of uh, dude. Talk about the that. drills and stuff you got on there. Oh, man. drills, yeah. I mean, he's so, got a ton of resources I'm on his website. In in the gun training business, there ain't no proprietary stuff, right? Like the drill, you might call it something different, but they've been around in some form for probably three decades at least. Probably since at least Colonel Jeff Cooper was around, right? But I put them on a in a in a a printable format and a and a really easy to to read format. Mm -hmm. And I even got pictures because I'm a I, I like pictures. So I got a little gun, little dude shooting little targets, but it explains the task and the standard, and then at the end, kind of overall what what you're working on this. Yeah. So if it's a drill that works a trigger control specifically, it, it tells you that. And it's real easy, and then my, the whole idea is you build your range book. And I and I and I got that idea because when I was a young eighteen Bravo, the range book didn't. There weren't no drills in it. Like it was always something somebody had in their head. Yeah. Or the couple of drills that were in there were like in paragraph format. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was like reading a manual. And I'm like, what, what the heck? And uh, and I went to the best shooter I knew, Jerry Brown. Hey man, what some drills? And he's like, well, you know. It's got, and it, there wasn't a book with mm -hmm. drills in them. Mm -hmm. um, so I did that so that dudes, and that was that most of those were actually in my range book on my team. Uh, Cause I started, you know, several years ago building those. Yeah. And just building, building, build. And even though the El Presidente, everybody's done it, everybody knows it, but now it's on paper. It tells you why, gives you the standards. And the reason, you know who Paul Howe is? I don't. He was a he was a a, a Delta dude uh, of Mo, in Mogadishu, right? He's got his own training business called CSAT uh, out in Texas. What's the difference between professionals and amateurs? And he come up with a lot of answers, right? But his answer is professionals have standards. Yep. So put standards on there. That's it, man. And give somebody something to work toward. Yeah. Because not every dude is going to be able to do a a, a sub second draw. Right. Yep. Uh, and most of the training I've ever done, second half is the standard for a one round draw. Yep. Um, and that's a that's a fairly good standard. Um, but you got to have something to work for. And anytime anytime you're shooting, you should be practicing one of these drills Edgar's yep. talking about, right? You should be being purposeful yeah. with every round that you fire. It does not take a lot of rounds. Nope. To go out and train for four hours. So one of the dudes I, I like a lot and follow, he's also a Delta dude, uh, Pat McNamara. His catch, one of his catchphrases is meaningful repetitions. Yep. If you're doing meaningful, re don't just throw bullets down range. Have a reason. Um, and I equate, and I do this all the time, and, and some guys it clicks straight away. Treat the range like you treat the gym. You go into the gym with a, a set – a lineup of thing. I'm going to work on mm -hmm. so, That's right. whatever you're working on. Go to the range with that same. I'm going to work on uh, either you know recoil management and maybe pick two solid tasks. Yep. And do something to build those tasks or accuracy. I'm going to work on 25 meter bullseyes. Yep. Uh, strong hand, we can. Whatever. Have a thing you're going to improve and then go improve it. Don't just go waste bullets. Shoot at a silhouette sized target. That's the it, redneck way, man. That's the way it is. I grew up with guns all my life. Well, and then you look at the silhouette, and there's holes in the whole paper, man. Like, yeah, 
it's madness. Yeah, it um, really is. And that's an expensive way to yeah, not waste time. To waste time. Yeah. Cuz you're not improving uh like that. Hold yourself to a standard. You know, get out of your comfort zone. And that's what those drills, that's why I made them printable and free cuz you know, uh, I would love to be making money off stuff, but I can't make money off something I didn't create, right? I just put it on the paper. Yep. So everybody should be doing things like that anyway. Yep. That's a that's one of the foundational things that we teach too, Edgar, is um, um, hold yourself to a standard yeah. and not a result. So work to achieve and, right. and maintain a standard, and the results are going to yep. fall where they may. Yep. And generally, if you're if you're shooting for a standard, you're going to achieve probably a higher result yeah. than you could have imagined you were able to achieve. Well, in different words, the same exact thing you just said, and I and I picked this up from Pat McNamara as well: performance based versus outcome based. Yep. Make the performance right. Like the outcome will be there. Yep. If the performance is solid. How many times do people just focus on the outcome? They though? focus on the outcome, and yeah. If you and if that's the way you train, you might be able to hit a, a bullseye, you know, one out of every ten times. You might be able to get a decent score. But if you're consistent with your performance, you'll be able, you'll be consistent down here. That's it. So the mechanics and everything like that. If you're not doing those right, everything down here is just random. You want everything down here to be predictable. Yep. You want the end result to 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 be predictable. Amen, brother. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Because um, it, it's lethal, right? In real life, if you throw one over a dude's shoulder and you hit some eight-year-old girl in the face, get one, are you going to be able to live with that? Two, you're going to have to explain to the judge why you shot a little girl in the face, uh, et cetera. So I know that's an extreme example for, <laughs> for the listeners. I apologize. But uh, it's realistic. I try yeah. to make it because that happened. Look at the local news or Atlanta news. There's always some little kid getting shot, somebody shooting into a house or whatever. Yep. Uh, and then it goes through, and then kid, the next house over, gets shot. Yep. That's always in the news. Um, and, you can, you know, gangsters do what they do. But there's nothing to say a concealed carrier who's a law-abiding citizen. Uh, th this happened uh, a couple years, couple years ago. There's a video. A dude was pumping gas. The gas station was getting robbed by two guys. He saw the robbery going down inside. Goes into his car to get his gun out, comes back out, and shoots two guys that came out the door. Well, the two guys robbing the place ran out while he was digging for his gun. Oh, man. Two employees ran out, and he turned around and put bullets in them. Mm. So, I guess his accuracy was on, but... Uh, situational awareness was Situational awareness was not his... Yeah. His assessment, his ability to keep his eyes on the situation while he was digging for his gun. Yep, yep. Uh, I told you that the other day yeah. on, the, on the range. Remember, Edgar, I, I, we, we were running through a drill, and I said, I got to quit looking at that holster. Yeah. I had my right. kid on. Here's another deficiency I found. I, I preach train like you fight. That's a, that's a foundational element, right? But every time we go to the range, I don't, I don't have my kid on every single time. And I had my kid on for our competition. And to clear those those pouches on the you know on mm -hmm. my right side, it it made my draw different and it made yeah. my holster different. So I was having to look down at my holster, and I said that to you. I said I got to quit looking at that yeah. freaking holster, man. 
It's little stuff like it's that. Little stuff, but it takes time. That's exactly right. And in competition, whatever, it's time. In real life, you're giving time to the bad guy. That's right. Yeah. Yep. So, yep, that's right. I don't always train in kit, but that's because nowadays I don't run around in kit. I yeah. carry a gun on my belly, you know, on my in my appendix carry. Yep. It's the way I, the way I carry. Um, a lot of guys come out with kit, and <laughs> you can tell it's like. Mags flying everywhere. Yeah, you can and, tell they ain't never done anything. In yeah, it. Uh, yeah. And and one of the one of the giveaways on that is because they can't reach because they got stuff where it should be clear. You know, that's right. Or or they got magazines like out to here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> crazy stuff. Yeah, man. And you're like, what is that? What is that kit for? Well, you know, uh, just in case. Do you carry it around with you in your car? I mean, <laughs> you know, you. When you start asking people practical questions, you get all kind of wazoo answers, man. Yeah. Like, I, I get you can come up with a reason. You can come up with a, a reason. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yep, zombie apocalypse. Yeah, I'm going to pull my kid out for sure. But until then, I mean, I, I, don't, I ain't going to carry it in my trunk. Mm-hmm. I ain't expecting to, uh, like, I'm a civilian. Even if I see something big going down, if I can solve the problem or help solve the problem from where I'm at, I don't know. Who knows what I would do, but um, I ain't going to reach into my trunk to get my kid out. I can tell you that. Yeah. Uh, Agreed. Yep. One of my catchphrases, I'll, I'll throw you a catchphrase. Um, speaking of kit and, and all this stuff and techniques and all this, I, I tell people all the time, ask yourself, what is the tactical advantage to what I'm doing? And if you don't have a legitimate answer for yourself, scrap it, get rid of it. Don't do it anymore. See all kind of wazoo stuff on YouTube. Yeah. A lot of extraneous movement, a lot of weird stuff. What's the tactical advantage? Eh, well, you know. Uh, 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 it looks cool. Yeah, mainly that's, it ends up, it's just it looks cool and some YouTube dude did it. Mm-hmm. But practical stuff, that's where I'm at. Yep. Principles versus techniques. I, I train principles like religion, right? But techniques or whatever, they change, they come and go. As long as a technique adheres to principles, mm-hmm. whatever. Yep. Uh, but if it doesn't, get rid of it, man. Yeah. Like that. Principles versus techniques. Well, guys, that was an awesome conversation. Yeah. I enjoyed the fire out of that, Edgar. We are two and a half hours into this wow, thing. Man. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, I appreciate you guys having me over, man. Hey, this man! Is the first time I've ever sat on a in front of a microphone. We'll have you back on a. We'll have you back on another show for sure. Yeah. Uh, these are th- these conversations are, um, I think, a little different when we're talking tactics and military and fire and you know training and especially as it revolves around firearms. Our listeners don't get that a lot, but they enjoy hearing it. Yeah. Um. So it's it's a little bit different, but I personally enjoy these conversations yeah, a lot yeah. because this is what we do man and and this is our wheelhouse oh, yeah. and you know it's part of what we do i guess so um it's it was enjoyable to sit down and get to talk through some of this stuff and and uh, we'll continue on and dude i would encourage you to start a podcast one day i, I mean you got I a lot of wisdom that, man it's a way okay. easier than writing a blog i can tell you that yeah, much i'd rather come uh share it with you <laughs> all right roger that yeah, i'll take that man i got a, i got a little blog on my website that I, I put some i call it uh opinions and unsolicited advice yeah <laughs> but uh i've only got a couple entries on that just to you know every now and then a topical itch me a little bit oh yeah 
and I'll hit on it. Yeah, I got. I, I have a. I have a segment here on the Three Seven Podcast that's just for that. It's called One Minute with Chad. Yeah, <laughs> and when something hits me, I got one of these yeah. mics at my house, and I can just sit down and put it out yeah. right. And I think it's important. Well, to have that's that. true. There's something I ain't no short of opinions. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, got, <laughs> I heard I got, that, I got brother. Of. Well, all right, brother. Well, Blake, you got anything else, man? No, just thanks for coming out, and I think we got a lot of cool ideas. And yeah, man. I- Appreciate it. This Hope is to see awesome. a lot more of you. Yeah, this is a sweet setup, man. This is awesome. Yeah, this is well, good stuff, right? We, here. Me and Blake built this. This is used this to be a carport, so we're pretty proud of it. Yep. But. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, go find Edgar. Check out his website. Check out those drills. Uh, go train with him. Follow him on Instagram. Uh, he's an awesome dude, and um, we appreciate you listening. Uh, and if you if you don't like to shoot guns and that's just not your thing, just reach out to him and tell him thank you for giving us two and a half hours of his day to uh, talk us through his experience in life and uh, share some valuable lessons learned with us. Uh, We love you guys. We'll catch you next time. Enough said.